Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Safety Insurance, offering a variety of home insurance products to cover your home's increased value. You can ask an independent agent about safety insurance. Safety Insurance will help you manage life's storms. And Bernadine Sung Megason with Compass Real Estate, serving buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston. Learn more at homesbybernadine.com. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, we'll try to answer what now for those who paraded and those who slinked out of New Hampshire. Plus, Michael Bloomberg wasn't on the ballot. That didn't stop the residents of the town of Dixville Notch from writing in his name. Bloomberg is making a big bet on Super Tuesday, making the former Republican mayor of New York, who's infamous for his administration's stop and frisk policy, win over the Democratic electorate. We'll ask his national spokesperson, Sabrina Singh, just what Bloomberg thinks is his path to victory. Defiant after securing an acquittal from the Republican-controlled Senate, President Trump is now out for revenge. The president fired Ambassador Gordon Sunland and military man Alex Vindman for testifying against him. Then the attorney general gave cover to Trump's 2020 campaign by announcing that any new investigations and political campaigns would need to be run by him. We'll ask national security expert Juliet Kayan what to make of all this and more next on Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. I am Marjorie Egan. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGPH. We are no longer in Manchester. We are back in Studio 3 on One Guest Street in Brighton. Hello, Jim. Uh, hi, Jim Marjorie. How are you? I'm well. <laughs> I'm a little discombobulated. <laughs> that was an exhausting but fabulous six days. It really was fabulous. And thanks it's fun. to everybody. People treated us great. It was just, it was fabulous. The New Hampshire primary has reset the dynamics of the 2020 race. Pete Buttigieg and Klobuchar and Amy Klobuchar are now positioned to fight each other for the moderate vote, maybe. Joe Biden's campaign doesn't look too good. And with Bernie Sanders' win, coupled with Elizabeth Warren's slump in New Hampshire, it looks like it could be late uh, for the establishment Democrats to stop his momentum. Here with us in Studio 3 to talk all things post-New Hampshire are Jennifer Nassour and Steve Kurgan. Jennifer is the former chair of the Mass GOP and founder of Conservative Women for a Better Future. Steve Kerrigan is CEO of the Edward M. Kennedy Community Health Center, former CEO of DNC, and his former intern came in second in New Hampshire <laughs> last night. I wish I had been your intern. Steve and Jennifer, it's great to see you both. Good to be here. So we're going to talk about the winners, losers, and where do they go from here uh, sort of thing. So, you know, winners, obviously, Bernie and Pete, but Amy Klobuchar did pretty well, too. Much better than expected, up almost at 20% of the vote. Let's do one at a time. Can we do one at a time? One Just go down the list. Let's okay. start with Bernie, Bernie Sanders. Twenty-five percent. He wins. Steve, <laughs> how big a deal is this? Obviously, a, a far smaller margin, but a far bigger field yeah, like 80, than with Hillary Clinton. Yeah. yeah. So, what's the deal? Uh, I said, I think on this show a year ago that if the winner of the New Hampshire primary wasn't a neighboring senator or a neighboring elected official, then it was sort of ridiculous, and they should all drop out. So it was expected that he would win. I think the larger story is. The, the smaller of a margin, uh, which goes to Pete's strength and Amy's strength in the waning days. Pete's probably more coming out of Iowa. And then Amy, frankly, just barnstorming the state and appealing to a lot of folks. And that debate performance on Friday night helped her enormously. The fact that he got 80,000 less votes than he got four years ago um, uh, speaks volumes to it. Now, the turnout was far less, which should be very concerning for Democrats across the board. Well, the turnout, I believe, was a, a drop ahead of 2016. Was it not just a, not near 2008? Is that... Maybe not that's true. maybe. I, yeah, think I that, thought it was a that, little bit less, but yeah. Uh, well, it's yeah. in the range, yeah. but it was not nearly the massive turnout right. that Democrats in general and and Sanders were predicting. You know, despite that sort of negative review from your friend here, Steve Kurgan, <laughs> uh, 
There's a growing sense that, uh, you know, obviously there's Nevada and South Carolina, but of all the Democrats, other than maybe Bloomberg, who we'll get to in a few minutes, the one best position for Super Tuesday is Bernie Sanders. And if he has a good day in the first week in March, a lot of people think he's the nominee of the Democratic <laughs> Party. Pierre, what are you laughing about? There was another disruptor, by the way, that got elected president uh, of the United States. You know yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, listen, you know, as much as I always like to say that Donald Trump was actually not a real Republican, Bernie Sanders is actually calls himself a socialist. Forget about the Democratic socialist. Yeah, yeah. Demo- whatever. I mean, that, that's such a fake... I have two degrees in political science. That's such a fake term I've never heard of that is made up by Bernie Isn't Sanders. political science number also one. Fake? No, number, <laughs> number two, you know, I agree with Steve that if you are a neighboring senator, if you are a senator from a neighboring state of New Hampshire, then maybe you should drop out. So Elizabeth Warren should pack her bags and get out now, of there. Now, I said that a year and, ago. And Deval- I want to be very clear. I don't think that's <laughs> And Deval Patrick should do the same. Um, so, I mean, that is my assessment of them. If Bernie Sanders, if Bernie Sanders is the nominee, let's just all say that Donald Trump is the president for the next four years. So, I mean, I said this to Steve back in 2016. If you guys actually want to win the presidency, you need to find someone who appeals to everyone. Do you think in the Donald middle. Trump is going to win the presidency in what? 2015? Um, in 2015, no. Oh, uh, well, there's, there's no. You there's didn't no think at the start of election night. There's, I remember. No, the start of election night. I didn't think that. Exactly. Can we stay Steve on the neighboring since you brought the neighbor? Hold on, but I think the bigger story to me is that when you look at the votes that Buttigieg and Klobuchar That's got the bigger story. together, right? Yeah. They're 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 44 percent of the vote Absolutely. or something versus the 25 percent of of Bernie Sanders, so which is me, why Bernie's not going to be the nominee. I think that I mean, right there from what you see in Amy and Buttigieg, judge, what you see is that there is a bigger appetite for a more moderate moderate candidate. And so my point, though, becomes if it is Bernie, he's going to you're going to lose all those people in the middle where you have to find that person who's going to be more moderate. To Jim's point, Super Tuesday is really, really important, but so are Nevada and South Carolina. And folks are mobilizing already to deal with the Bernie wave in Nevada. The culinary workers put out a release to all of their members last night while he was speaking, 60,000 members Nevada wide, to say, do not. They're not endorsing necessarily, but they're endorsing against him because of Medicare, Medicare for all. all, and they don't want to lose their their well, health care. And that's a huge deal in Nevada. Elaborate on that, though. It's not just in Nevada. I mean, there's a lot, a of, lot unions of organized all across labor, the country, yeah, across the country, including government workers right. who have these great uh, yeah. But the hotel yeah. the hotel workers basically yeah. control the, the Nevada caucuses. Yeah. Yes, yeah. but I'm just saying nationwide. Right. Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. And this remember last night there were 24 delegates elected there at, last night in New Hampshire. And this is a delegate game. Three candidates came out of there with delegates because Elizabeth got under 10% and so under 15% and so did the vice president. Uh, so that's maybe maybe Bernie got nine delegates and uh, Pete got eight and and uh, Amy got six, check my math, um, or seven. Uh, but that's not a lot. That can't be overwhelmed in the next few caucuses. Okay, so uh, let's go out of order. Since you mentioned the other Massachusetts people, uh, Elizabeth Warren, is there a path? And if it turns out she doesn't do well in South Carolina Nevada, a growing body of conventional wisdom is she does not want to lose her home state on Super Tuesday. What, yeah, what goes what she, with her? I think that's what she's got she's to watch. She could go all the way through Super Tuesday. It's about money at this point. If she's got the money to stick it in, she's got a good organization nationwide, but she'll end up doing an awful lot of you know, airport hangar rallies and TV time. As long as she has money to do things like that, I think she'll stay in. I don't think she's as concerned as conventional wisdom that she can't lose Massachusetts. I don't think she feels super threatened by that. But she should be watching the polling as it gets closer to Super Tuesday. And if she's at risk, then she needs to make the best decision for herself moving forward. Now, Jennifer Nassour, since you're the other woman in the room, 
I felt a surge of estrogen coursing through my veins last night as I was driving home from New Hampshire thinking about Amy Klobuchar because there's a lot of women who were behind Hillary Clinton. They may not have been crazy about her, but they were behind her, devastated when she lost. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is, is not doing very well, obviously having trouble connecting. I think she got uh, slightly more votes than Bill Weld got in uh, up against Donald. Yeah, she got 9.2. He got 9.1. Bill Weld running up against Trump, and uh, poor Biden got even less than that, as we know. Higher percentage. I don't know about the actual votes. There are fewer <laughs> right. people yeah, voting in the Republican yeah. primary. But anyway, um, she's got a lot of appeal, I think, to moderate Republican women who don't like uh, Donald Trump and, uh, you know, are Jennifer Horn, themselves. the former chair of the Republican committee in New Hampshire, endorsed her in an op-ed in the yes, newspaper the other day. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that Amy is palatable, right? I mean, I think that she hasn't done anything to um, me as a, as a moderate Republican female look at her and I say she's smart. She, I think, when she, she being on the Judiciary Committee, her questions, um, you know, were really great with Kavanaugh. I mean, she she was, was not obnoxious. She was forthright about her own life and her own situation. Um, I mean, I I think that if we're going to have a woman who's out there running for president, that she gives a good a good impression of what who that woman should be, right? She's strong. She's, she has a story. She has an authenticity. I she, right. Yeah, and she right. connects. About her. And, and I don't think, and I mean, I was saying to Steve, I know people who went to law school with her that have said, you know, they really like her. She's a really good person, despite the, the conversations that have gone on on staffing. But, you know, as a person, people actually like her. So, I mean, I, I think that she, you will continue, I don't think she's going down. I think she can stay steady and go up and worst case scenario, maybe be someone's VP if it's right. not for president. But can I, just, by the way, when you say, despite the talk about, you're referencing this New York Times story in February of last year, how Amy Klobuchar treats her staff. Uh, she's offered a salad in a on a flight, and then her staff drops the fork and doesn't have one. What happened next was typical, writes the uh, New York Times. Ms. Klobuchar berated her aide instantly for the slip-up. What happened after that was not. She pulled a comb from her bag, began eating the salad with it, according to four people familiar with the episode. Then she handed this comb to her staff member with a directive, clean it. The basic point there was she treats her staff like crap, that'll obviously resurface. But I, I, I want to this Klobuchar Warren thing. I mean, for someone who's worked in the middle of campaigns, both of you, what's important to remember that a lot of the experts were saying last night is while Klobuchar comes out with huge momentum and obviously great disappointment with Warren, Klobuchar's got nothing in place right. in these next states. She had no money until the debate. <clears throat> she raised allegedly three million dollars. Right. And for those who say, well, infrastructure matters. People in Nevada didn't watch the debate in right. New Hampshire. People in South Carolina. So even though she got a huge lift and she was brilliant in that debate, it's not clear that that she's going to survive South Carolina and Nevada. Is no, it or is it? No, and, no. And yeah. Warren May because – Because of her, exactly. her, her infrastructure. And that's the thing. Elizabeth has been working a year to build an infrastructure. Amy's been working a year to build um, a name recognition and anybody to pay attention to her and get some momentum. She did what she – felt she needed to do and what she could do with the limited resources she has. Apparently she bought a seven-figure ad buy in Nevada, hoping that maybe the Nevada debate she'll have another moment like she did in, in New Hampshire. Uh, I think that's a risky gamble. I would have spread the money out a little bit more mm -hmm. over Nevada and South Carolina. But she, you know, she, she has throughout this campaign 
been the one candidate who has maximized when they've had a good debate has maximized that opportunity to, to increase their their um, uh, visibility. So but speaking I, about, I'm sorry. I don't know if you could see the scowl on my face when we talk about Elizabeth Warren versus Amy Klobuchar. Like they could not be any further apart in different universes in connectivity in in for the reason that Hillary Clinton lost women in 2016 was that she and I I kept saying this she was not a woman that I would want to follow she didn't seem like the woman who is going to pull other women up with her and give other women the opportunity to break glass ceilings where where and you see the same thing with Warren she's all about her there's nothing about her that seems like she she is going to help anyone else. And I think that the feeling is just different with, with Klobuchar. It, it's totally right. different. And I also am a little offended about doing the woman against woman debate as opposed to her against any of the men. So I will say uh, the one distinction that Amy Klobuchar does have that will be important in the next few states is the, she's the only person in this race that polls worse with uh, voters of color than Pete Buttigieg. Yeah, that's a very good point. And that is going to really So how about that? First of all, for, for people think, for yeah. people think so just for a second, that yeah. I was making up a – Buttigieg was your – Intern, he was, was he not? Yeah. Well, can you describe briefly what how that hat <laughs> came about? Jim Browdy loves bringing this. <laughs> I love this, and, story. and I think it's mostly so mostly because it makes me feel really old. When my <laughs> yeah. intern is running for president. Maybe but explain what happened. Right? Yeah, I'll be his intern. This is when you were with Ted Kennedy. Right? <laughs> That's when I was with Ted Kennedy. Yeah. Tell, tell he won people. he won the Profile and Courage essay contest when he was a high school senior. You can and, see that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He, uh, incidentally, he wrote it on Bernie Sanders. He wrote his essay on Bernie Sanders. Really? Um, weirdly enough, um, <laughs> is that true? That's true. One hundred percent. I can get you a copy of it. Please, love that. Wow. So he wrote it on Bernie Sanders and uh, won the essay uh, favorably. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure he doesn't want a lot of people to hear about that now, but uh, (laughs) we're going to read it it on the air actually as soon as you get it to us. (laughs) So at any rate, he uh, we were at the Kennedy Library and the senator and I were talking to him and he said he was going to become a student at Harvard in the fall. And the senator said, "Well, you should intern in my office." And flash ahead about a year, he was interning in our office. I mean, he was a your other intern, you should say, was Donald Trump, which is just (laughs) it is amazing. That you have bred. I will say at one point, Mark Preston from CNN was also my intern, and he was commenting on true? Pete Buttigieg. So I thought God, this is really God, meta. you're dating yeah. yourself. You I have know. had so, a spree of yeah, then, and look at me. Yeah. By the way, of all the amazing stories out of the pathetic Iowa situation, the Buttigieg story to me yeah, is just. Fantastic. I mean, there's so much oxygen taken by Klobuchar last yeah. night as she should have. The fact that this mayor of a city with 100,000 people who is openly gay, yeah. who doesn't try to hide it, right. and embraces his uh, uh, his husband after... I mean, it is surreal. Yeah. However, yeah. he's going into states where Latinos are a huge uh, uh, issue in Nevada. African Americans are 60% of the primary voters in South, South Carolina. Carolina. He's got almost no time to uh, uh, turn things around in both those constituencies. A hundred percent. And that's a problem. I mean, he got really, I think the situation would be different had they legit, had he legitimately won that moment that night in Iowa and there wasn't the delay and he could go into yeah, New Hampshire with that. I agree that would with be that. different. Uh, but he's going into South Carolina and Nevada with almost no support in communities of color. And that's going to really hurt him. I mean, there is one constituency, one demographic that without whom Democrats can never win an election, and that is African-American women voters. And they just do not like him. Whether it's, and they don't there like is, Klobuchar well, either, you They say. don't, no. What's that about? Well, I think I don't. I haven't looked at her numbers as to why. For Pete, I had a lot of conversations. I was in D.C. last week, a lot of conversations with folks in that community. 
Um, a lot of it, I thought a lot of it had to do with um, the church going, African-American women don't necessarily, they're not super comfortable with uh, him being uh, an openly gay candidate. There's some of that probably, but there's some of that in every uh, every group. It really has to do with how he dealt with um, the shooting in South Bend, firing the first uh, black um, police chief uh, in Indiana. That affordable them, housing thing. All the affordable you, housing yeah. stuff. I mean, he, his record, a court, now, there's a lot of ways to slice it up, I'm sure. But according to a lot of leaders I talked to in the in the black community in Washington, uh, they view his record as really suspect. And it's all over Indiana, which means when people in other states are checking in with folks in Indiana to say, hey, is this guy for real? That's well, getting out to the rest a, of the country. Well, he mowed down a black neighborhood for urban renewal. Uh-huh. And it was yeah. very controversial. Yeah, and okay. then when that shooting happened, he went straight to the police department and thanked them for all the work they did and not to the, the victim's mother. Speaking of uh, African-Americans, the only uh, African-American candidate left standing, I think, at 1,200 votes, Deval Patrick. Excuse me. Brian just sent us the essay, so we're going to print it out. Right? Oh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> thank you, the, Brian. Uh, Deval Patrick said last night he and his wife are going to talk about what's going on. I'm assuming that this morning he says he's done. Is that... Not what everybody expects. I mean, I, I again, so. I don't know if anyone actually knew that Deval Patrick was in. Oh this no, race. no, be well, nice. you be are kind. <laughs> be kind. I was at this forum on Saturday. He was fantastic. And by the way, he's great on our show too. Yeah. But you know, you know what was great about another person who did draw. You know, Yang and Senator Bennett. Uh, by the way, coming on our show is a curse. They both came on our, our show, and both of them Wait, dropped you, you out Trump hours on in later. 16, though, Wait, maybe that that's true. Wait, maybe that explains me and Steve. Then that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but can I say, you know, I came on after. It was a beautiful tribute. Uh, Van Jones he used to work for Obama. He's on CNN. Did a beautiful tribute to Yang last night. Yeah. And I'll paraphrase, and he said it much more artfully. He says, "You know, I, a great loss for this campaign of somebody who's so smart, so funny, so all whatever, creative." And he said, "You know, every other." candidate talks about what they hate. They hate billionaires. They hate immigrants. They hate whatever they do. This guy doesn't hate anybody. He's got this positive, smart, creative agenda. And it's true. He wasn't going to be president of the United States. But I would say Andrew Yang's got a huge future, whether it's someone told me this morning he's contemplating running for mayor of New York, secretary of education, whatever the hell it is. This guy is one impressive character. Yeah, I'd I'd agree. I mean, he did... um... I think he had a little bit of hate in his heart after Iowa, which is why he fired all of his senior leaders. Well, that's that may be. So I think there's a little bit of that. Okay, uh, so <laughs> can we do We have two more people we've got to discuss yeah. before we end here. Uh, Joe Biden goes to South Carolina before the vote. I haven't given up on New Hampshire, but I'm leaving New Hampshire. <laughs> goes to South Carolina. I have to say, I listened to his speech last night. It troubled. It was so, I want to use that. It was so pandering. Uh, to black voters, in my estimation. Now, some may say it wasn't pandering. It was appealing to black voters. But regardless of who's right, this is the thread by which he hangs, is the African-American voter with whom he was doing spectacularly well, not so well now, in South Carolina. It's make or break for this guy in this one state, is it not? Well, they have always been campaigning on a four-state strategy. Always. Um, And always... everything. And I listened to the speech last night, too. It is... um, Reminiscent of stuff he's been saying the entire campaign. This isn't about two small, almost exclusively white states. This You get with Nevada and you get with South Carolina a little bit more of a sense of what the rest of the country is going to look like. And he was right. I mean, only two states that are small and have almost no minority population have voted. And somehow we've decided that what they say 
There goes the no country. vice president in American history who's running the New Hampshire primary, former or current, has done as poorly as he did. No one last accused night. of groping eighteen women was elected president. Twenty four now, I, I believe. Twenty four. <laughs> you know, Jennifer Nistor, I have another theory, and, and I'll run it by you since you have the other woman in the room. I was thinking last night after I had my shot of estrogen run coursing through my veins over Amy Klobuchar, that if a woman candidate had the tragedy mess in his life that Joe Biden has had, and I think it's taken a huge toll on him. His son, Bo, was just dead 2015, died of uh, brain cancer. Then he had this second tragedy, really, with Hunter Biden, who's had a very troubled life, you know, ridiculed coast to coast. Third for, tragedy, his young family. Well, that's yeah. right, but, but this is just recently. Oh, I mean, this is, just, okay. this is just recently. His son being ridiculed all over the world, you know, this weird thing where he's carrying on with Bo Biden's widow, and then he gets married to someone he's met for a week and a half, and then he's in a paternity suit, and he's, you know, his cocaine problems. A woman could never run for president with that kind of stuff going on in her life. And I think we've underestimated the toll this may have taken on Joe Biden. He looks like a walking mm. old man yeah. or, or something now. Yeah, um, and that's what, I mean, I I don't agree with Trump on anything. But last night when he was giving his speech, I felt like when Trump says Sleepy Joe, that was kind of what he looked like. Now, I know it's, you know, really demoralizing when you when you are the former vice president and you lose in two states. And I agree with Steve. They are small and they are white and it's not representative of what 2020 is like. However, he did seem deflated. But I think also is that in your head, should I really have done this, right? Exactly. I had all this stuff exactly. going on, and maybe maybe I should have just not done it, and and I thought I should have done it in 16, and I didn't, and I thought I could wait, and I thought emotionally I could handle it, and it's a lot of stuff. I mean, it's there's a lot, a lot of, of emotional yeah, baggage. You, I mean, you've made the decision to run for office, as I have, as Jim, you have. Um, no. it, it, difference is I won. Well, yeah, oh, thanks. Oh, Rub it oh, in. Oh, wow. Cool. Wow. Well, I mean, wow. That's a way to get guests back on. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Uh, that was brutal. <laughs> true, but, but, uh, but brutal nonetheless. Going yeah, after. we're going to have a drink. I think it would have killed him not to have given it a try. Right. Uh, and I think if he had, if he weren't there and the uh, we got to a general election and we had nominated Bernie or something like that, I think he would eat I him totally up. I totally agree yeah. with you. But I'm just, pointing, really... I'm just pointing out the double standard. Oh, Everyone in America 100%. would have said that mother should be home, yep. taking care of her. What is she doing running for president with all this in her, this, Absolutely. In her life? Okay, so we only have a minute left. We're going to talk mm-hmm. in about a minute after uh, this to the national spokesperson for Michael Bloomberg. <laughs> Obviously staying out of the deal. He's already at 15% in national polls without having done anything except set up a huge infrastructure and run hundreds of millions of uh, dollars in ads. Uh, quickly, first you, Steve. Is this the real de- Is this a real deal in this campaign? I think it's too soon to tell. I think he is the physical manifestation of the Iowa app. It seems like a great idea before it actually mm-hmm. has to get used. And now we're going to beta test it on the national stage. And I think it's a very, very risky proposition. And we'll see, I suppose. How about you, Jennifer? Yes, absolutely. I yeah, have absolutely to say, wish that he is a real deal. Absolutely think he's the real deal. I will say that if I go around, I ask people. Everyone is hesitant to say who they're going to vote for in the primary. But as soon as I say, I think Bloomberg's going to do it, everyone says that's exactly who When you say for. Bloomberg's going to do it very quickly, is he the one who you think is the greatest threat to Donald Trump in the 100%. Democratic field? You do. He is what Donald Trump thinks that he is. He's smart. 
He's successful. Yeah, he is I mean, he has relatable. to be able to turn out uh, and energize Democratic voters, and the man has switched parties more than I've switched shoes. Like, he... It, it, and he's, but if you he was have most a recently, between a Democratic socialist or look, a guy I, who I can get actually... It. If he's if the nominee... If you're going to beat Trump, who I get do you it. beat Trump with? I get it, but I know the members of my party. And right. they, a lot of them, a lot of them are... Um, they're driven by ideology, and they will not vote for a former Republican and billionaire. And, and, let, and let Trump win? Right. Uh, look, I, 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 I will. I'll vote as many times as I can, but I mean, <laughs> just tell And then the we reality. can't all talk about him as an existential threat to the country and then say, well, you know, Michael Bloomberg. <laughs> well, I agree. I tells me that I'm I just saying, to end the, like, we energized people in 2018 in the midterms around the health care attack and things like that. Yeah. I don't think people are going to be energized to go out and vote for a billionaire who basically bought the election when the number one priority of the Democratic House last year was election reform and getting big money out of politics. Well, the man's people writing have to vote. So if they choose them, they choose them. I, I agree with you. Steve and Jennifer, it's great to see you both. Thanks nice so much. Thank for you. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Okay, Jennifer Nassar is the former chair of the Mass GOP and founder of Conservative Women for a Better Future. Steve Kerrigan is CEO of the Edward M. Kennedy Community Health Center, former CEO of the DNC. Thank you very much. And Pete Buttigieg used to be his intern. That's, That's right. That's all I'm sorry. Okay. I'm going to add that to my LinkedIn page. <laughs> Coming up. With Mayor Michael Bloomberg's campaign gaining traction, he's also coming under great, greater scrutiny. We're going to talk to his uh, spokesperson next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Marjorie And Former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg entered the presidential race just over two months ago. Didn't have a campaign headquarters in New Hampshire. Wasn't even on the ballot. Nevertheless, he did win Dick's film notch as a write-in candidate. Now that his campaign is gaining traction with him rising dramatically in national polls and putting a huge campaign infrastructure in place, Bloomberg is also coming under greater scrutiny with the reemergence of a 2015 recording of him forcefully defending stop and frisk. Joining us on the line to talk about all of this is Sabrina Singh. She is the national spokesperson for Bloomberg's 2020 presidential campaign. Sabrina, we really appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me and for taking the time to chat. So, so what did you think about the results last night up in New Hampshire? Uh, you know, I I think like all of us, we were uh, anxious to see who would emerge as um, the winner. And, um, you know, especially following Iowa and last week's sort of, I think, breakdown of the democratic process. Yeah. Um, and look, I, th- I think that, you know, we, we see that Bernie Sanders has won New Hampshire, but it was not by the same, uh, I mean, nearly uh, like a, I think a quarter less um, than what he won New Hampshire by in uh, 2016. And so, you know, you know, the results for us in New Hampshire show that Democrats must urgently con- consolidate around a candidate who can actually beat Donald Trump. And I firmly believe that that candidate is Michael Bloomberg. I mean, despite only entering the race just a few short months ago, Mike continues to rise in the polls uh, in the critical March and April races. Um, you know, we had a Quinnipiac poll that shows Mike at 15 percent and in third nationally. He's now second among African-American voters. Um, so I, I really think that Mike is the only candidate that can actually actually go head to head with Donald Trump come November and um, really unite the Democratic Party around one candidate. Hey, uh, uh, Sabrina, I'm sure you saw Donald Trump's Mm -hmm. tweet saying uh, Bloomberg had a very bad night in New Hampshire. Do you think the president knew that uh, Michael Bloomberg was not on the ballot (laughs) in New Hampshire? (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, I'm not sure what the president knows these days. Um, if he's listening, I just want to make it crystal clear that not only were we not on the ballot in Iowa or New Hampshire, but we're not on the ballot in South Carolina or Nevada. Uh, we are not competing in the early states. Uh, Mike got into this race November 21st. Um, we had a very compressed timeline to get out his message and, and really, you know, communicate to voters why he is the best candidate to win. And um, we, you know, and that meant that uh, we had to lay the infrastructure in the states that our Democratic, you know, rivals are not in right now, the big Super Tuesday states and beyond. So we just didn't have enough time to really lay the groundwork in those early states. But come Super Tuesday, Mike has a huge and massive state operation, um, and we are competing for the delegates in some of the, 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 the big, big states like California, Texas, Florida, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan. Um, and, and, and we're really positioned, I think, in those battleground states to take on Donald Trump, who has been campaigning in those states since essentially he was elected. Um, so we are going to remain competitive and, and, and to look forward to taking on Donald Trump in the states that Mike is actually on the ballot. We're talking to Sabrina uh, Singh. She's a national spokesperson for Michael Bloomberg's 2020 presidential campaign. Now, before we get to what the campaign is doing, Sabrina, you know, Donald Trump obviously has been around New York City forever. I mean, he grew up in Queens, been a developer there uh, for decades. M- Michael Bloomberg, three-term mayor of New York City. What's their relationship? Even though he's a Medford boy, by birth, That's right. Say. Massachusetts angle, the local angle. What's their relationship like? I mean, did they hang out? They must have been a lot of fundraisers together, a lot of society events together. Are they sort of friends or were they friends? Uh, you know, I don't really think they have a relationship at this at this point. I think, you know, being in New York, I'm, you know, paths certainly intersect. But look, Donald Trump is, is certainly someone that um, is so divisive that I think that it's hard for anyone in the Democratic Party and even independent, moderate Republicans to uh, have any type of uh, relationship or share values with a president that continues to demean, whether it's, you know, diverse communities around the country or our allies overseas. Um, it's it's very hard, I think, to, to call him a friend these days to even Americans here at home. Sabrina Singh, it, could you just take 60 seconds, and we've all read in the Times and elsewhere the, the, the mm-hmm. breadth of this operation, this infrastructure, as I described it, that was put in place. Tell us briefly, if you can, what does it look like? Is there a presence, one of the Super Tuesday states you failed to mention, I should say, is Massachusetts. Is there an infrastructure here? I'm sorry about no, that. No, no, that, uh, is, that is my fault. <laughs> what, is it lo- what does it look like? What's the Bloomberg infrastructure look like? Yeah, well, we have over 2,400 staff right now in um, uh, states all around the country. We have 2,000 in our states and 400 in our HQ. Uh, we have... Um, the staff in, I believe, 43 states and territories, including all of the Super Tuesday states. Um, and we are continuing to open up um, offices around the country. And particularly in Massachusetts, from January, since January, the campaign has placed 56 staff members including 45 field operatives. Um, We have offices all across the state, Brookline, Fall River, Lowell, Quincy, and um, we are holding an office opening in Springfield uh, with former Philadelphia Mayor Michael Nutter on Tuesday. Uh, uh, We did uh, this yesterday, Tuesday, February 11th. So we are really... um, 
making sure that our presence is known everywhere. Um, and some of the big battleground states um, that I mentioned, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, you know, North Carolina, Arizona, Florida, and Michigan, we have over 500 staff divided between those states. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is no other campaign right now that can compete with the state operation that we have in these states across the country. And we know that coming out of South Carolina, the last early state to vote, um, candidates are going to have to turn their attention to the Super Tuesday states. And I, I think the only candidate that can really win is Mike Bloomberg, because we have the infrastructure and we have been having conversations in states with voters, whereas other Democratic candidates have had to focus their attention on the four early states. Mr. Speaker, I was looking at what you're paying people above 15 bucks. You're going 17, 18 for some of these interns, health benefits. You know, think, people should think about that. <laughs> Things don't work out their jobs, <laughs> position they might think about joining the Bloomberg campaign. But one of the big points uh, that was made in these stories I've been reading is the, 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 the data and the uh, digital strength of the Trump campaign. And, and mm-hmm. you know, this Bloomberg founded a, a, a data digital company. And one of the arguments from your end is that this, that kind of data campaign is necessary to combat what Donald Trump could do. Tell us about that uh, advantage you're hoping to have, or at least parity. Absolutely. Yeah, and the company you're referring to is Hawkfish. Um, Mike, when when Donald Trump was elected, uh, something that the, the Trump campaign and the RNC was were extremely successful at was using a digital operation that really was unrivaled, um, and they used it to communicate with folks at all all different levels and all different platforms. That is the goal of Hawkfish. Hawkfish is there to not only help elect Mike Bloomberg, but to help elect Democrats up and down the ballot. Um, and so what this, uh, you know, arm of ours does is communicate with voters on all different platforms, whether that's using, uh, you know, the gingerbread trolling man um, in, that is featured in some of our videos uh, with Donald Trump or, um, you know, uh, posting on Instagram, not just updates on Mike's plan, but also, you know, using, you know, creative graphics, memes, things like that. We want to draw people into the campaign. And then as they get more interested in Mike, give them the information that they are interested in. Um, And there is no other Democratic campaign out there that has an operation like we do that can actually reach so many voters across so many different platforms. Um, And so that's really why we, you know, truly believe Mike Bloomberg is the only one to take on Donald Trump is because we have the capacity to do this and meet voters at every level that they consume their news. You know, we're talking to Sabrina Singh, who's the national spokesperson for Bloomberg 2020. I mentioned the the reemergence of this 2015 recording from Aspen of your boss. And I think virtually everybody knows about Stop and Frisk, and people did remember in November, Michael Bloomberg was at a black mega church in Brooklyn November of last year and said, quote, I was wrong and I'm sorry. But this tape has created a, a bit of a firestorm. Let me read it because the sound is so horrible. 95% of murders, said Bloomberg, murderers and murder victims fit one M.O., you can just take a description, Xerox it, and pass it out to all the cops. They're a male, minority, 16 to 25. That's true in New York. That's true in virtually every city. And one of the ways you get the guns out of the kids' hands is to throw them against the wall and uh, frisk them. Uh, what is Michael Bloomberg saying in response to, as I say, the reemergence of this recording from 2015, Sabrina? 
Yeah. Um, you know, I think that, look, like you said, Mike has apologized for not fully understanding the full impact uh, the New York the NYPD's practice of stop and frisk had on black and brown communities. And I, I really think that the mark of a leader is admitting the mistakes that you've made and apologizing. Um, and, and so he did that. Uh, but what we care about is nominating a candidate who can beat Donald Trump and um, who has the comprehensive and, and thoughtful plans to improve the lives for black Americans. And that's why Mike's you know, he introduced the Greenwood Initiative, which would address systemic bias that has many black Americans from, you know, prevented black Americans from closing the racial wealth gap. Um, and he has bold actions that, that I think will matter most to vote to black voters, increasing the Affordable Care Act, uh, creating an economy that works for everyone and ending gun violence. But I think we have to remember that, look, he has apologized. He was wrong. Um, and this is someone that is going to come into the White House. He's going to take the lessons he has learned from that time and grow from them. Um, and that is not something I can say that Donald Trump has done. Um, and so I think it's, it's it, what matters and I, what I hope voters take away from this is that, um, you know, he really has learned. And this is something that, you know, we are going to really be thoughtful of uh, and about and, and work to create a better life and, and better economy for black Americans across the country. We should point out the president deleted his tweet accusing Bloomberg of being a racist over the stop and frisk policy because uh, Donald Trump himself supported the exact same stop and frisk policy uh, and repeated his support for it many, many times. Sabrina, saying one last thing from me bef before you go. Mm -hmm. The other big rap, of course, on Bloomberg is that he's buying his way into the race, and this is not the way the presidents are supposed to be chosen in the United States of America. They go through, well, I don't know if they're going through Iowa anymore, but they just went through New Hampshire, you know, <laughs> changed the kitty litter, you know, meet at the diner, all that kind of stuff. He's going to surpass all this and run basically a totally different kind of uh, money-driven campaign. What's your rejoinder to that? So Americans cannot be bought, first and foremost. American American voters are very smart. Um, they are discerning, and they are not someone whose vote can be bought by anyone. So I think uh, the, the Democratic candidates who are trying to say that and spread that, it's actually insulting to American voters because that's just not the case. Uh, Mike is someone who has a proven track record. He is a doer. He is someone that, you know, has a record of growing the economy in New York, uh, taking on the toughest challenges like the NRA, um, combating gun violence, uh, taking on uh, companies to reduce their carbon footprint in New York City. Um, that is the type of person that we need in the White House. Um, that is the type of leadership we need on the world stage. And I think that is what Americans are going to see uh, when Mike hopefully not only qualifies for the debate stage, um, but when people turn out in the Super Tuesday states and beyond. Sabrina, thank you very time. much for your time. You appreciate soon. it. And good luck. Of course. Thank you. Thank you. Sabrina Singh, we just heard her. She's the national spokesperson for Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg's 2020 presidential campaign. Up next, we're opening the lines and asking you about the primary results. This is 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. We are back from Manchester, New Hampshire. We are live from our WGBH studio right here in Brighton.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Marjorie, and we're opening the lines, taking your calls on all things New Hampshire primer and post-New Hampshire primer at 877-301-8970. Do the results have you rethinking who you're going to support? If you were leaning towards Biden, for example, do his underwhelming results in Iowa and New Hampshire have you looking at somebody else? Did one of your candidates drop out? If you're part of the Yang gang, will you consider Bernie instead? And if you're a Warren supporter... What now? 877-301-8970. We're going to take calls on this now, and we'll return and take your calls again sometime in the 1 o'clock hour. But let's go right to them, Marjorie, okay? Okay. Let's start with Alfred on Route 2. Hi, Alfred. Hello, Alfred. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Pleasure. Um, I just first wanted to respond to uh, your guest's assertion that Bernie Sanders made up the term democratic socialism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was actually first used by Karl Marx in 1849, criticizing a French political party. And it was in fairly widespread use by 1900, uh, especially in the U.S. So uh, I, I guess she just got pretty bad grades in her political science <laughs> classes. I don't know. <laughs> well, obviously, you well, got very good grades. Yeah, so thanks well, for thank the, you for that. But uh, uh, give us yeah. your reflection um, on uh, yesterday. Yeah, um, I'm a bit surprised and concerned by Bernie Sanders' uh, the margin that he won by. I think he'll kind of extend his lead uh, as he gets into states with more Latino voters because uh, he has pretty good support amongst Latino voters, including me. So I feel like uh, I think he'll do well in Nevada. I, I think I've seen polls with him leading in California, too, which would be huge. So I, I saw them, too. I don't know if that's post Bloomberg's entry, but I have seen. I'm not sure what the current event uh, situation is in uh, California, but he was doing terribly well there. And obviously that's his voter rich as it gets. Alfred, thank you very much for the call. 877-301-8970. Uh, let's go to Judge Jay on the road back to Rhode Island. Hi. How are you? Good morning to you. I'm, I'm well. I'm a little tired, but uh, yes, I have been in New Hampshire for a week and uh, working various angles of it. I've, uh, I was also a voter protection lawyer in Nashua at one of the busy polling places yesterday. So um, the first thing I'd like to say is that in spite of what some of the reports are regarding what will other campaign supporters do, no matter who is nominated on the Democratic side, my sense uh, on the ground is that the party will come together, um, that they are so fearful of four more years with Donald Trump that that is going to be the primary incentive uh, of what happens uh, going forward from here. By the way, Jay, you've called us before. You were a judge in Rhode Island. That's correct? Uh, no, I, I thought... was a judge in Texas. Oh, in Texas. In okay, Texas. that's what wow. it was. Yeah, you, when you yeah. called originally. But who were you in New Hampshire for, uh, uh, Jay? I was actually canvassing for Joe Biden. And what's your uh, reaction he, to the results there for uh, the former vice president? I'm very disappointed. Um uh, I met with him two nights ago. Uh, he was his fire was up. Uh, he gave a marvelous rally speech. Um, I'm, I'm disappointed he left so quickly. I think I think the, the the right thing, if you will, to have done would have been to have thanked not me, thank his supporters who worked so hard for him up there. Uh, I'm disappointed, no question about it. Thanks for your call. We hope you'll stay in touch with us as times go along. Thank you. By the way, I gave uh, at least, I was going to say incomplete, but frankly, uh, misdirection information in California. The real clear politics average of California polls have Sanders at roughly 26 percent, Biden second at 21, 
uh, Warren right behind, Buttigieg way down there at seven, and uh, and uh, Bloomberg. Again, this is the average, and it's still, you know, uh, the Super Tuesday is in early March. It's still three weeks away. Uh, uh, Bloomberg only at uh, 4%. So my apologies if I uh, gave you a wrong impression. David and Dedham, you're on Boston Public Radio with Marjorie Egan and me, Jim Browdy. Hi. Good afternoon. I'd like to uh, comment about the discussion about whether someone's a democratic socialist or a socialist or a centrist mm-hmm. or sure. a Democrat. Um, regardless of who gets the Democrat nomination, uh, America's enemies are going to be supporting the Democrat nominee. The North Koreans don't want Trump to win. They want the Democrat to win. Russians, uh, Cubans, Venezuelans, North wait, Koreans. Wait, 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 David, you Iranians think Vladimir, David, David, this is a two-way conversation. You think Vladimir Putin wants Donald Trump defeated? Well, <laughs> Why would you tell me how social we're having a we're having a conversation about socialism? No, the we're United, not. We're having a conversation. And you just of, asserted that dictators around the world wanted the Democratic candidate. And I asked you a very direct question, which is, do you believe that Vladimir Putin wants Donald Trump defeated in November? That's a pretty direct. Y- yes. What are they getting from him? Well, they're what, getting what, what policy. Aren't they getting, what aren't they getting? What aren't they getting from when Obama said uh, Russia was not a. A, uh, David, can I tell, David, you're going to stop talking for a second because uh, what we don't do is how aboutism on the show. Sean Hannity does that. We don't. We talk about the subject at hand. What they, what he gets out of him is he has a president of the United States who trusts Vladimir Putin more than he trusts his own intelligence apparatus. He has a president of the United States who, after it is all 17 intelligence agencies, conclude that Russia interfered in the election, tries to convince the American people that it was actually Ukraine that interfered the election. I guess I'd say to you, what does Putin not get out of uh, uh, President Trump that he's looking well, for? Well, the whole Ukraine thing helped help the Russians in their war effort against Ukraine with holding By that holding aid. up to 391. Right. But how about it, David? I'm I'm lumping all of our enemies together. Russia is an enemy. The Iranians wanted Jimmy Carter to win in 1980. Have they ever stopped wanting a Democrat to win? Okay, you won't answer my question. Thank you for the call. If you want to answer the question about Putin, feel free to call back tomorrow or the next day. Thank you for the call. 877-301-897. Let's go down to Rhode Island where Nick is on the phone. Hi, Nick. Hi, how are you? Good. Good. Um, Yeah, uh, last night's election, I was really impressed with... um, Bernie Sanders, but um, I wish he had done better. But um, I did notice the point that if you did combine Amy and Pete's numbers together, that uh, they do have a very strong position moving forward. But I'm surprised that really no one's bringing up that um, everyone says that Bernie is can't really recommend um, represent the Democratic Party because he's too far left. But what about Amy being pro-life? Isn't that a bit too far right for the Democratic Party? I, my understanding is she's pro-choice. Oh, I just uh, I saw an article this morning saying that she's um, saying that there should be a, a position um, in the Democratic Party for people who are pro-life. She has, she has said that pro-life Democrats, quote, I think she said her quote was, are a part of our party. I don't think. I mean, if people consider that if you want pro-life and pro-choice people to vote for you, that you're you're leaning pro-life, then I guess that's your position. But 
she is, I think, stated quite clearly that she is pro-choice. Well, she's, she's done trying the big tent Enlarge saying, the tent. Yeah, right, the yeah. big tent saying yeah. that there is room um, uh, for people with different beliefs within the party, but she's definitely pro, pro-choice. Lots of people argue that. You know, that that was one of the big things at the Women's March, you know, one of the big fights. You know, could you be at the Women's March if you were a pro-life person? And, you know, there's a lot to be upset about with if you are a, a woman with President Trump rather than his uh, late arrival to his alleged pro-life credentials. I mean, he was pro-choice for most of his career. And by the way, Nick, I just want to clarify something. When you said people are saying, I want to be clear to the listeners, we're not saying. I don't know what our conclusion is. We've discussed a lot whether or not somebody with Bernie Sanders politics can be elected president of the United States. And I think there are powerful arguments on both sides. The most powerful I've heard of late, which I've sort of adopted, and thanks for your call, is uh, uh, that he's a disruptor on the left, like Donald Trump was a disruptor on the right. And as you've mentioned, I think David Axelrod was, wrote a great piece about right after the election of Donald Trump, explain, Obama's guy, explaining how he missed the Trump uh, election is that after a two-term president, he says history in this country is generally that the electorate goes almost in the exact opposite direction in an attempt to balance what happened. Yeah. Yeah. And that he's I'm not speaking for Axelrod vis-a-vis San, uh, Sanders but obviously it would be a disruptor on the right to a disruptor on the left and people are angry at government and so is Sanders so I I'm not uh, I don't know what my conclusion is except that to write him off uh is Well uh, he appeals to the the system is rigged Rick crowd. I mean, the president uh, uh, ran on that in 2016, and Bernie Sanders ran on that in 2016, and he's appealing to that malaise of the people that Andrew Yang talked about, the 50-year-old truck driver yeah. who who's going to yeah. be autom- automated out of a job, and he's 50 years old. He's got some health issues. The idea that you can retrain people in midlife it doesn't always work, and I think that that's what common you know a common denominator between Trump and and Sanders. Although Trump has, as I've said repeatedly, not. Um, he's 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 you know governed as an oligarch, getting huge tax breaks to very wealthy people. You know what? You know what's interesting about uh, you mentioned Andrew Yang, and I meant to say this, and I had forgotten. Uh, you know, of all the people we interviewed, talked to candidates, surrogates, he's terrific. One of the 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 greatest quantity of response I think I've gotten, which speaks to me about showing your human side, how important it is. We had Andrew Yang on the re- on the radio yesterday, and if you missed it. Uh, at the end of the interview, he, when Marjorie was about to say thank you, it's clear that he was about to speak. So Marjorie stopped her thank you and said, I'm sorry, uh, Andrew Yang, did you want to say something? And in the most genuine way, he said, I really want to thank you both so much. And he said it both with sincerity and humor in his voice for mentioning my name so many times in the interview. I can't tell you how many people texted me yesterday and have spoken to me this morning because it's such a human. People love that. They love. And I think part of the Klobuchar thing from the debate was not just how tough she was and how smart she was, but there was a human thing happening there. People really like to be able to break through the the surface, I think, of politicians and see their innards, for lack of a better expression. We're getting several emails Yang about, did a great thing. about Klobuchar's record as a prosecutor, where she um, was very controversial in yeah, terms she of was. backing up cops in cases where there was brutality against uh, people of color. And people weren't looking that closely at that, obviously, because she was a non-factor until the Friday night debate. And then, obviously, things changed dramatically, and now it's on to Nevada. Maggie and Lynn, thank you for calling me. Oh, we're almost out of time, so I'll have to be real quick. I'm sorry, Maggie. Hey, Maggie. Okay, I'll make this quick. Everybody is saying the system is broken. Individuals are trying to run against the individual president. 
instead of running as individuals. They all have particular strengths. You mentioned uh, Andrew Wang. He says he is the math guy. Our budget is blown to hell. Why don't they run as a team, all of us against Trump? We will bring each of our strengths to the table. We will already have position. You'll know who's vice president. You'll know who's treasurer. You'll know who's the secretary of state. Look at Joe Biden and all the goodwill he's engendered around the world. Put him there. If they ran as a team, instead of forcing us to select one of them, we could change history. Well, by the way, you know who did a variation on that? Not as a team, but once he was the nominee, uh, said part of what his team was going to be, particularly judges, was Donald Trump. Yep. So if you liked his suggest selection of judges to be, that gave you another reason to vote for him. So I'm not sure it should preempt uh, elections. But once there's a nominee, I love it if they lay out who they're going to appoint to key positions. I think it's a wonderful point. Maggie, thanks for making it. Up next, we have a coronavirus epidemic. Uh, meanwhile, the president is asking Congress to slash budgets for health and science agencies. Our national security expert, Juliet Kayyem, joins us for that and more. She is next right after the news on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Public Radio, when the Cheesecake Factory wasn't sure which flavor of cheesecake to release, they decided to ask the people. So diners were asked to vote which flavor they wanted to see on the menu. But it's not just the Cheesecake Factory. The Seattle Sounders soccer team gives members of its fan club the privilege of getting to vote to remove or not the general manager of the team. In a couple of minutes, we'll ask behavioral economist Michael Norton if the customer really does know best, or if this is one case where democracy may not be the finest idea. At his State of the Union address, President Trump bragged that his administration signed into law a landmark criminal justice bill that shortened prison stays, but his Department of Justice has quietly been fighting against that law. We'll talk to uh, justice expert Andrew Gerbaugh about that and about four Department of Justice prosecutors quitting Roger Stone's case after the Attorney General interfered with his sentencing as well. That is next on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. We are back in Brighton, and I'm very glad to be here. So how much are you missing the breakfast buffet, the double tree? Can we get down to the issues that really matter? I mean, falling out big, of bed, going down the elevator. Sorry, breakfast, buffet, breakfast buffet, oh, 16 sorry, bucks, all you can eat. I tell you, it was disgraceful on really? many fronts. I'm getting weepy about it, actually. Here with us in Studio 3, I've got, to get, I've got to power through. Here with us in Studio 3 to go over the latest national security headlines is Juliet Kayyem. Juliet's an analyst for CNN, former Assistant Secretary of the Homeland, uh, Department of Homeland Security, and faculty chair of the Homeland Security Program at Harvard's Kennedy School. Julia, it's good to see you. It's good to see you both. Welcome back. Thank you. Well, let's talk about the status, uh, before we get into the present cutting budget uh, for health and concerns like this, um, the coronavirus. What's going on? 
Oh, well, uh, a lot. Obviously, we have over a thousand deaths now. Um, and so just putting it in perspective, um, it's really bad in China. I mean, they are in a crisis. They are trying to... Uh, um, through a variety of means, quarantine and isolate uh, the virus, figure out ways in which they can ensure that it uh, isn't transmitted uh, quickly. And obviously, other nations are responding in kind by either limiting uh, uh, travel or uh, having their own processes of, of identification and isolation of individuals. Uh, of those over 1,000, it's just worth noting only two uh, have uh, are, are d uh, died outside of China. Um, so I'm giving you everyone, I'm the good news today. So only two died outside of China. We're at about 10 identified cases here in the United States. People are surviving it at great numbers, uh, but people are also dying from it in too great of numbers. We're sort of and over 2% older, that's, yeah, okay. older men. Um, so we're not, this is, uh, this is sort of the reverse of H1N1, which got a lot of parents like myself nervous because that was... Uh, sort of bringing children. down or killing children, yeah. healthy children. Uh, these are men, um, elderly men, some of them with preconditions. They're trying to see if there's a tie to smoking. Um, in other words, the this is a respiratory ailment, and if the respiratory uh, capacity is limited in men that are smoking. so um, And China, we have to believe now, although there are some horrible stories, um, is taking it seriously with, uh, and what we're hearing from the World Health Organization is uh, providing information. Other good news. Um, um, there is now a unified scientific international effort to identify both, you know, ground zero, how did this come to be, and then what uh, potential vaccines there are, as, uh, as well as identification of it. The only way you're going to stop this is uh, to be able to quarantine or isolate those who may have it. So you're looking at some good news in some ways. Uh, but um, uh, we have to prepare for the likely that, likelihood that this would be a, a global pandemic. That term um, is um, loose. Uh, so w when we're at a pandemic, no one quite knows. Uh, uh, but it means a new or novel virus uh, that extends across uh, geography. It does not necessarily mean that it's deadly. Pandemic doesn't go to the term pandemic doesn't go to severity. Uh, and we, one would suspect that WHO has no inclination to call it a pandemic yet, uh, so long as it can be isolated in China. But, you know, little things that you're starting to get wind of how the impact that this is having, everything from what you're seeing the supply chain impacted, people in tech are, are you know, uh, uh, talking about various uh uh, uh, um, supply chain uh, implications. Uh, but even for me personally, I was supposed to be in China in July and then go to the Olympics in Japan. Um, and, and that that conference or what I was supposed to speak at was uh, indefinitely postponed. In so July? In July. Uh, because they can't, well, so you can't guarantee, let's assume March or April, right, people right, right. have to decide what they're doing. So just imagine that, you know, that's just little old me. Imagine that a million times over. So uh, you may have answered this question when you mentioned the WHO right after mm -hmm. China. How do we know that China's telling the truth? I mean, they are really careful yeah. at protecting their image as best they can. The worst an epidemic is that was that was birthed there. Yeah. They believe the worst they looked. Was your point that the WHO is actually able to monitor what goes I on? Think, uh, I think China, um, just, and this is just from public information, I haven't done any, any uh, 
research separately. I think originally, whoever uh, at the levels of people who were in charge when they started to see this novel virus uh, did not appropriately respond um, and, in fact, did hide it. Um, and we heard stories about doctors that were whistleblowers. The, the, I think the, I think he passed away. He was very ill. And um, and uh, but when um, uh, uh, leadership in Beijing uh, realized what was going on, realized that they had to be uh, transparent, as transparent as China can get about it for a variety of reasons, and, and mostly the economic impact, but also the political impact. Uh, you know, we, uh, China is not without its dissent. Um, it is a population that is under tremendous stress now. Uh, the Communist Party wants to remain in power with as little dissent as possible, and they don't want a political uh, response as well. So um, I'm not saying that they're perfect. What I'm saying is that during SARS, uh, the WHO and China were at blows with each other. Uh, you are not seeing that now. You are seeing a WHO that that views China as cooperative as China can get and an international community that is going to take China for its word, uh, at its word for now. You know, one last thing about this. When we, the, when right after the coronavirus hit, yeah. and I don't know if his position has changed, so I want to make clear it was right after we learned about it. Mm-hmm. Art Kaplan, the medical ethicist yeah. that joins us every week, was not poo-pooing it and saying, don't worry about it. But he said, keep in mind that since 2010, there have been 12 to 60,000 deaths from the flu in the United States every year. And I have to say, and this is totally anecdotal, I haven't done the research either. I would say the intensity of broadcast information about coronavirus, which so far has affected about a dozen people in the United States, is compared to the flu, which kills 15 to 60,000 a year. It's like night and day. Exactly. So why are public health types that you work with not chastising people like us and your bosses at CNN and saying give it proportional attention? I think there are those articles out there. I think, you know, look, you're in the news business, novelty – is headlines True. right? So that's a it's a new virus. It's it's excessiveness. The way that China has responded with quarantines, it sort of satisfies a perverse interest in us of, of you know reliving quarant you know living a, uh, what is the movie contamination or outbreak? Uh, one of those uh, movies. So I, I agree with you that and and that's why um, I'm not stressed. I we're not in a crisis. I think. China is. I do think that they have a, a serious problem that one hopes, and we should be supportive of WHO's efforts, including their efforts to uh, get money from uh, member nations uh, to contain it. Containment is going to be the fastest way to ensure that this does not become a pandemic from the U.S. perspective. I like what I'm seeing in some instances. I mean, I think uh, CDC has been leaning in, the deployment of resources, training, PPE, personal protective equipment, all that stuff that you would want to be distributed and and surged uh, seems to be happening here. There's some moves that I not even agree with, uh, agree with um, but certainly uh, the, the White House, if it doesn't have a lead person, which it doesn't yet, um, uh, the White House is is deferring to the CDC so far. And that, in this White House, is a good news story. By the way, we talked earlier with Jennifer Nassour and uh, Steve Kurgan about whether or not the vote Patrick would drop out. He has. Here's his quote. The vote Just minutes ago. Uh, The vote in New Hampshire last night was not enough for us to create the practical wind at the campaign's back to go to the next round Mm -hmm. of voting. So I've decided, says Deval Patrick's statement, uh, to suspend the campaign effective Uh, immediately. I think roughly... 
1,200 votes last yeah. night. Well, in he New started Hampshire. a year late, you know, yeah. and, yeah. and that was for it, it might have been a much different story yeah. had he started a, a lot earlier. I will say Just, this. You you both know I've worked for him twice. Uh, he was the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights when yeah. I was in that division, and then I was his Homeland Security Advisor. Uh, many uh, great people who would have been great presidents do not – uh, survive the primaries, and uh, and so I adore him and love him, and and uh, but you know as he says, uh, he had to have come out of New Hampshire uh, stronger, and he has many great years of contributing ahead of him. You know, just one thing before I leave the coronavirus, I, I, we don't have to worry about this budget because the House of Representatives, which is dominated by Democrats, is probably not going to yeah. do anything about the president's proposed budget, which includes a twenty six percent cut in the right. Environmental Protection Agency, um, but. Is his sixteen percent cut in the CDC because he's like worried about bloat or or? Yeah, I mean that's the argument of the entire budget that somehow there's bloat, but then mm-hmm. when you actually look at it, there's only bloat in places that sort of you know cater to community efforts and health and and well being and and diplomacy as compared to uh, the Defense Department. You know, this is um, the Trump budgets tend to be. Um, I'm making a statement to my base. We know that it's not going to survive the legislative process. Why that statement is was important now seems I'm not sure what the constituency for not dealing with a potential pandemic is, um, mm-hmm. but he definitely went after at the core what we call the sort of public health preparedness apparatus. So it's not just CDC. It's sort of across the board identification, state and local uh, capacity, which is where it will play out for uh, pandemic pre- preparedness. Um, I don't uh, look um, budgets and budget proposals are a statement of moral priorities, and I think that this is where Trump's moral priorities are. Democrats do that too, by the way, yeah. knowing that yeah. it's a statement and that yeah. their budget and is a, unlikely yeah. to Well, the become, statement is, is, is I mean, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but some of the statements are odd. I mean, we yeah. are still in the midst of an opioid epidemic. Why you wouldn't want to be prioritizing that? I mean, well, you also promised you wouldn't cut Medicaid, and you're cutting at eight hundred billion dollars yeah. over ten years. Medicare, Mexico would yeah. pay for the wall, etc. Can we move on to this? Uh, this uh, particularly a piece of what now is being called the Friday Night Massacre. Oh, it's obviously yes. when Lieutenant Colonel Vinman, who testified the impeachment yes. hearings, was led out, escorted out of the White House. His twin brother, who didn't testify but was a lawyer for the NSC. Fired as well, and obviously Ambassador Sunland, who obviously should have given ten million dollars to the inaugural committee, because a million was not enough, because he was fired. The, the, I'm just interested. a downsizing. That's all it is. I, I'm just a downsizing. In your thoughts about oversight and what the Democrats could do, but I want to fast forward to the latest development, yes. and then we can work backwards. The President of the United States has said that it would be appropriate. I'm not quoting, but this is the thrust of it for the military to uh, potentially bring action I know. against Lieutenant Colonel. Disciplinary. Disciplinary Disciplinary action. action. Would there not be a revolution in the ranks of the military if this celebrated, courageous soul, who obviously upset the president, you know, by testifying in ways that in some ways didn't hurt him, but in other ways did. What first of all, would the secretary of defense do this kind of thing? And two. What would the reaction yeah. be? You deal with so, a lot of military yes, people. Yes, I do, and and uh, got a couple of phone calls yesterday. So I just I I don't mean to dismiss um, Donald Trump's pettiness, vindictiveness, uh, sort of you know unsuitability to be president of the United States. This is all it all played out in what he uh, said about um, 
of retaliatory efforts against uh, 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 against anyone who testified against him. I do believe that there that uh, Trump has no. What was Freud? What is the uh, the thing? Is it the id? The thing that sort of keeps you from saying what you want to say. So because he's so internally vindictive, he just says something. Do I think that the Pentagon is now going to investigate? I think the answer is no. I think the Pentagon is going to do what the Pentagon has done for as long as I've known the Pentagon, which is, you know, you slow roll, you slow roll an idea from a president until it becomes, um, you know, forgotten. Um, and, uh, and, and would, and would do that for two reasons. One is why would they set themselves up for a legal battle. It just, I mean, you have a president saying investigate him. I mean, in other words, the, the a good defense attorney is, is going to have a good argument that this was, uh, uh, you know, based solely on pure pettiness, which is much of the Trump administration. But the other is, is what you said is, is it was would not go over well in the Pentagon. Um, he was subpoenaed. Um, he testified under subpoena. The brother did not testify, the twin brother. Um, and and so you just, you know, this is something that would reek poorly. My guess is um, Esper, who I'm no friend, uh, no fan of, um, Secretary of Defense Act. Is he? Oh, my God. Isn't I that think. Cr- is he ever been confirmed? I, oh, my God. Sure I don't either. think he's been confirmed. Isn't that crazy? I can't even remember I don't think so. anymore. They'll check. Our colleagues um, will uh, check. Esper, the present Secretary of Defense, uh, um, is very weak. Uh, he's lost a lot of battles to Pompeo. Uh, but I don't think he's that weak. And I think that what he'll tell his team is, yeah, we heard what the president said. Um, and, um, well, you know, yeah, we've, what's got, interesting, we've got bigger fish to fry. I was just looking up uh, the other guy that whose uh, fate may have disturbed many in the military was this Eddie Gallagher, the Navy yes. SEAL. Was Esker, accused, wa- Esper was confirmed. Okay, he was thank you. Is that crazy? I can't even remember. Accused by his Working fellow on. SEALs of war crimes, yes. including stabbing a teenage ISIS fighter in the neck and killing him and shooting at yeah. a young girl and, and, and war crimes, essentially. Um, he was supposed to be big on the campaign trail with the president. He seems to have faded fairly yeah. quickly. And you wonder whether internally some people said to the president, well, I've this seen, is not a good Yeah, I've seen some good polling. Look. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I've seen some polling of the military, more recent polling, and his his sort of undeniable support in the military starting to fracture. Some of that is the Kurd issue that uh, these men and women, uh, these service members who had devoted years to to having some semblance of peace in in the area could not believe his decision about the Kurds. Some of it is this, um, uh, is issues like this in which he sort of favors an attitude of sort of lawlessness. Um, I happen to think that's why, that they're seeing that polling, um, and that's why he left New Hampshire, what night would that have been, Monday night, and went to Dover. I don't know if people remember, but he... The president uh, did. The president did. When the two uh, Uh, service members' bodies were brought back from Afghanistan. I sort of thought, why why are we seeing this now? Because I view everything he does as political. Um, uh, uh, And I thought something's going on where they're starting to see... Uh, yeah. Some of the fractures in in the in the service member ranks. Um, you know, can we get back to the impact on yeah. those who are not disciplined? I interviewed a couple, and you know all these people. I interviewed a couple of CIA members uh, right after uh, Donald Trump was trashing the intelligence agencies, yeah. and I said to caller, you know, Putin telling me he didn't interfere and all this kind of thing, and some people who have former FBI roots when he's trashing uh, the FBI. 
when you're a careerist and mm-hmm. you really do play by the rules and the vast from what I read and you've been inside the hierarchy yeah. I have the, the bureaucracy I have not when people say they don't play politics they may vote and they may care about a Republican more than a Democrat or a Democrat more than a Republican but the vast majority of these people dedicate their lives to doing exactly. their job I don't know what it's like to wake up and see a decorated man like the Lieutenant Colonel Vinman who I don't think they get much more humble and yeah. service-oriented and dedicated to country, is first accused of dual loyalties and then is not only just fired but escorted as if he were a security threat or some such thing. With his brother. That has got well, to trickle. Well, they were trying to betray him as a security threat. Has got, Fox News, they practically called him a spy. That yeah. has got to trickle down in the most negative yes. ways. And if people want an effective military, an effective set of intelligence agencies, this is exactly asked backwards, yeah. even if he does want to retaliate against people. Right, no? right. That, that's exactly right. And I, when you said lieutenant colonel, I was going to put it in quotes because that's what Trump did in a tweet as if he didn't actually own uh, oh, the title. As, as I said at the beginning, you know, never underestimate uh, 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 Donald Trump's pettiness and vindictiveness as a president. He can't step outside, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, himself. And so he just does these things, and sometimes they're ignored, and sometimes they have tremendous consequences. But there's an entire apparatus that's um, validating his pettiness um, and, you know, who are the people that escorted him out? Uh, where is he going to be placed at the Pentagon? Who made that final, you, know, you have to sign papers to to actually transfer someone out of the White House to the Pentagon. There's a whole apparatus that caters to his pettiness. And I think, and that apparatus, I have to say, is not just political, it's also career. And I think one of the shocking things for people like me who uh, believes that the institution's uh, 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 we're holding. I think we're under tremendous stress right now. Um, uh, one of the reasons why I believe that they would hold is because civil servants uh, would not uh, cater to that pettiness. You were starting to see the pushback. You saw it at the State Department earlier. You're uh, with the with the impeachment hearings. You you saw it at DOJ yesterday. You saw four civil servants. Uh, uh, I think one resigned fully, but all of them resigned from the Roger Stone case. Yeah, we're going to discuss yeah. this case with uh, Andrew Cabral in oh, just good. a couple of, okay. uh, uh, of uh, minutes. But you know what? Uh, this will be my hopefully my final naive comment of the day. <laughs> when things like this happen, when even again, I am fine with people saying I'm a big a member of Congress. I support what Donald Trump is trying mm-hmm. to do. I support his presidency. I, they can say whatever they want. They can vote for all this stuff. When a person who professes and through the years, all of our lives, Republicans are more patriotic, allegedly, than Democrats. They care more about their country than Democrats. They allegedly care more about the military. Did we hear a peep from anybody when Vindman is escorted out? Did we hear a peep no. from anybody yesterday when four prosecutors, even if you love Roger Stone, yeah. are are uh, essentially overruled and humiliated by their bosses and there's interference. Now Trump is saying it's okay for me to intervene. Yeah, even, I mean, even if you love it. Donald Trump, why are you not able to yeah. say, I am troubled by the way the four of them were treated? I am troubled by the way Vinman was. Right. I, I don't understand why it's got to be, and I know it is with Trump, why a self respecting person can't say, I support the man and his policies, but I don't support right. this behavior. I just don't get it. It's I really... deeply troubling, uh, to quote a senator. I'm deeply troubled. I think that's right. And I think the idea that, um, you know, this is post-impeachment Donald Trump and uh, 
you didn't have to be a rocket scientist to know that this was how he was going to behave. And this is on the Republican senators. Who... Well, the best, Manu Raja, who's the congressional yeah, correspondent for your station, CNN, tries to get uh, Susan Collins, who we all oh, remember yes. after oh, she yes. voted for acquittal, said <laughs> in an interview, it. well, he's the president has learned his lessons. He tried to get her to say what lessons <laughs> has he learned in the wake of the and Friday night. what did she night. say? She would not yeah. answer. Yeah. The, uh, she's, uh, she's not sorry, yeah, she's exactly. Not exactly. <laughs> that his power is... Um, He's like Voldemort. What is? What is it? Wasn't the power just like even more? Like he, he got he got hungrier and hungrier until we need our Harry Potter. Uh, I don't know who that is. Maybe maybe that does say something about one of the leading candidates and the Democrat good. about the mayor. He could be our Harry Potter. Good oh, to see you, uh, uh, that Julia Kayyem. That's no. <laughs> is that oh, Mayor Buttigieg. No. Okay, that is we have it. two yes. mayors running. Oh, I know. Oh my gosh, that was fast. Yeah. Goodbye, yeah, everyone. Fast. I won't see you for two weeks. Oh, I am hitting we'll the road. You. We'll have fun. Pace the rage, everyone. Pace the rage. It will be madness when I get back. I promise. <laughs> Julia, thank you so much. Juliet Kime is an analyst for CNN, a former assistant secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, and faculty chair of the Homeland Security Program at Harvard's Kennedy School. Thanks again, Juliet. Coming up. Does your vote count as a consumer? Harvard Business School's Michael Norton joins us for that and more on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And today, fresh off the New Hampshire primary, we've been looking at the power of the people. Now we're looking at the power of the purchaser. After all, isn't deciding what the Cheesecake Factory's next flavor of cheesecake should be or what Lay's potato chip should pick as a limited edition flavor as important as picking our next president? Well, joining us to talk about what happens to brand loyalty when consumers get to have their say is Michael Norton. This is the subject of his research, which comes with the esteemed header, Procedural Justice and the Risks of Consumer Voting. Michael Norton is the Harold M. Brearley Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School. His latest book is Happy Money, The Science of Smarter Spending. He's also the co-host of the podcast Talking Green, which explores the psychological forces that drive attitudes and decisions around money and investing. And as always, in a few minutes after he explains his research, we will take your calls. Michael, it's great to see you. Good to see you. So perhaps Bodie McBoatface is a good way to illustrate exactly what you're talking about. So this is, uh, if you have not heard of Bodie McBoatface, so the uh, story. <clears throat> the uh, government of the United Kingdom had a new, like, uh, I think it was a polar explorer ship. That's my knowledge of, of naval things, by the mm-hmm. way. And they decided that they would, to sort of drum up interest in science, they would let the public vote on the name of this new ship. And they were thinking people would have, you know, like, famous people from British history and stuff like that. And there were a lot of entries that were like that. But somebody put in the entry of Bodie McBoatface, <laughs> which is ama- it's amazing for so many reasons. But, the, of course, they were just joking. Probably they said to their friend it was funny. But then that went viral. And so Bodie McBoatface ended up getting way more votes than anything else, including uh, Margaret Thatcher was an option. <laughs> David Attenborough was an option, who's probably the most loved person in the world. Yes. Even he could not beat Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> and so the question was, it was a great idea. Open it up. Get more interest in science. Everybody wins. 
what do you do when people choose a name like Bodie McBoatface or, in other cases, <laughs> things that are even worse than that? Can you imagine? By the way, do you know that my mother was thinking of naming me Bodie McBoatface? Did you know that? I did not she know that. She decided So That it, would be humiliating for everybody, though. You're going on the USS or, in this case, the RRS, Royal um, Navy. I mean, that would be humiliating. So, Michael, the point. let me just be clear at the beginning of this discussion. Allowing the consumer to vote is different than requesting feedback. Is that is that correct or no? That's exactly right. So many, many uh, companies will, you know, you get these customer surveys after you do things, please fill it out one to five kind of thing. And they will often also do f- focus groups and things like that. Do you like these products and so on and so forth? But they only recently really, it's always happened, but really it's exploded lately and partly because of the, I don't know if you've heard of the internet, but the <laughs> internet makes it easier where any product, any firm releases, they can throw it out there and let people vote on it. And again, in theory, it's fantastic because the company now makes products that people really want because they told them that. And then people get the the thing that they really want as well. So often it's it's great. But we were in this is research with Tammy Kim, who's at the University of Virginia. We were interested in these cases like Bodie McBoatface, where it goes <laughs> really, really wrong. And the question is, why do consumers get so upset on the one hand when it goes wrong? And also, well, what should companies do after it goes so wrong? So, so, and you prescribe rules. Well, you fill in the blanks. Tell us what your research concluded on these issues. So in general, when uh, people think about voting, uh, there's a couple of principles that are really important. They apply, by the way, not just to voting on products, but as you said, voting on presidents. Mm-hmm. There's a few of them. So one is um, representation, which literally means uh, people's votes should count the same. We get really upset when your vote counts 20 times more than mine, and you can think how that would make you feel. The other big one is consistency. So if we say up front, here's how this is going to work, we can't later on say, yeah, we changed our mind. Actually, we're going to do it a different way. So these two already are really, really important. And the final one, this is an obvious one, is about suppression. You got to honor the vote. So you can't have a big national election. And then, for example, somebody gets more votes, but then they don't end up being president. So you know a little political humor there. Yeah, it was it was good. Did you get it? Yeah. No, I, I sort of got it. Yeah. <laughs> so just to be clear, Marjorie and I were talking about this before. She doesn't care at all if uh, companies or any entities solicit her vote. I do. I love it, and it makes me totally feel engaged and appreciated. Uh, before we get to the disrespect fa- thing, I assume I'm more typical than she is. Is that correct? Uh, it depends on the some people in a specific category get really excited. So you might get if an ice cream Losers, company, you mean, for example, <laughs> I was going to say friendless, <laughs> but loser is probably fairly correlated. You okay. could think, you know, like some people love ice cream. So uh-huh. if, if uh, you know, Ben and Jerry's has a voting thing oh, for yeah, ice cream, you're do. out of your mind they excited. They flavor too. Exactly. But, but you don't, you might not care about coffee. So then you're not at all interested in voting for coffee, but you're really interested in voting for ice cream. We are, there are some people who definitely like it more than others, but often it's really, really specific. If you love something, then voting for that really, really gets you engaged. Okay, when I was in college, there, we, there was a revote because I went to Stanford. They used to be called the Stanford Indians, and we had to get rid of that because it was disrespectful to Native Americans. So they had a vote. It's and now it was, the Stanford McBoatfaces. <laughs> it's not, oh. but the vote that was that took place when I was there was to rename this, the football team, the sport, 
the Stanford robber barons. That's because not of course, true. Yes, because, of course, Leland Stanford was a uh-huh. robber baron, and everybody thought that was really fun. And, and the administration said, no, no, we're not going to call us the Stanford robber barons. So then people got very upset about that. Then they thought they'd rename it the Stanford trees because of the redwood trees uh-huh. out there. And that was vetoed. And now, of course, the, cardinal. the Stanford cardinals. Well, that's but exactly. But isn't that, wait, there wait, wait. was a lot of upset yes. about that because people were so excited about the Stanford robber barons. I thought that was going to be great. By the way, uh, one of our colleagues reminded us that David Attenborough was what they ultimately ended up naming the ship. That's right. Uh, yes, they did. But, but so she's exactly what, who you're talking about. That's a good example. Let me ask you another one in my life, and I don't know if this applies as a consumer. Uh, Cambridge a few years ago, and I don't think it's the only city in America. I think a bunch of cities do it now, but I love this. They put aside, I think, a half million. Do you live in? Oh, I'm not. Yeah. Is it okay to say? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, participatory budgeting. Absolutely, yeah. Every year, everybody, including kids, by the way, I believe, if you can prove you lived in Cambridge, can vote on how I th- think it's now up to five hundred thousand dollars is spent, and they give you a set of maybe ten spending items, what it'll buy, how much it'll cost, and you get to vote. And they do honor the vote. If a trees is one, like every year in a row, that yep. kind of thing. My family's been really pushing that. Uh, that is that fit in the same category? Definitely. Kind of thing? It does. Yep. And so the participatory budgeting is really taking off. Cambridge is one of the is. early cities, but, but all over the world, uh, all over the country at least, it's really taking off. Because people feel, you know, when you, when you pay your taxes, whether you like or dislike tax, whatever, you don't know where they're going exactly. And mm-hmm. so the feeling is that you're, you're giving something and you don't know what you're getting back. Participatory budgeting is exactly this, right? Where now I can, at least for some part of the taxes yeah. I pay, I can have a vote and say, you know I what, I it. want a tree so I. or I want a playground and I get to tell you which one I want. Our number is 877-301-8970. We're to solicit your thoughts on this in a couple of seconds. So the pluses and minuses. The pluses are you feel respected and much more engaged to the product or the thing if your vote is solicited. Is that correct so far? Okay. And the downside is, one, if you violate any of those criteria you talked about, a representation, consistency, non-suppression, which obviously people – but so that I agree with. You're nodding in agreement. But the third thing is what happens when you're asked to vote and you lose? Meaning uh, I vote for the flavor to be Marjorie Egan at Ben & Jerry's and it's Michael Norton instead. I'd be devastated, Are, of course. Do you, does the consumer feel, well, they respected me enough to at least consider what my thought was, or do they say, sort of, screw them, they asked for my vote, and I didn't win? Where, where do they go? There's actually two really important comparisons. There's two things that can go that can go wrong. So one is, well, I go through all the trouble of voting, I click in my thing, and then it ends up, I didn't win. We find that people still prefer that to having no input at all. So I still am glad at least that you let me have a vote. And I, I can accept that I lost because it's transparent, right? So I can see all the votes and I can see that nobody liked my flavor. And I do <laughs> still say I like the company more. That's the kind of company that includes me and it's, you know, decision making and I like them. But Is the, there one last thing about this engagement thing? I'm really fascinated by this. Is there hard data I mean, I understand that we would all say, I'd say, Marjorie apparently wouldn't. Well, you would in some circumstances. I feel closer to the company. I feel closer to the city because they solicited my vote. Is there hard data to show that I'm more likely to buy that product? Or there is. You're nodding in agreement Definitely. If, I'm, if my input is formally solicited. Definitely. There in is. Fact, so most people have focused on that part, right, which is that when, when you let people participate, they really like the outcome. Because they feel ownership kind exactly. of thing. Exactly. Yeah. What Tammy and I wanted to look at in our research is 
again, what it doesn't always go right. So mm-hmm. what happens when it goes wrong? What if everyone in Cambridge votes for something terrible and the city of Cambridge says, well, we can't we don't want to build that. What do and we what do does now? happen? People get if you if you Google Bodie McPhoface uh, in your free time, yeah. the rage and the, and rage, the rage you felt exactly you we still feel the rage. Ourselves protesting, marching up and down the street, yeah, and the, the Memorial Drive. So the, it's worse than even having not asked. The craziest thing about it is you're better off just saying that you're going to do something yeah. than asking people for input and then ignoring it. Okay, That's when people just, get really before, angry. Before we take a break, I just have to ask We're you. Not a break. Apparently, Mountain Dew did this uh, solicited new, a new flavor. And people wanted to call it diabetes. Yeah. <laughs> so, that one. So, yeah. So what happened? They So now companies have gotten a little wiser. So they'll often have like a pre thing and then Multiple they'll screen choice, it a little yeah. bit. And so then they, didn't, they didn't name their new flavor diabetes. Exactly. <laughs> so give us a buzz. 877-301-8977. Do you like consumers having this kind of influence? For you, do you feel better about a brand or a thing, a company? If you are informally invited into the process and honored, and do you feel betrayed if your idea, your vote is ignored? Does it bother you that corporations are doing market research essentially for free, asking for your ideas? It doesn't bother me at all. I love being included. I love sort of, you know, it's sort of like we're transferring our, our hopefully, our embrace of democracy in politics to saying we should have, is this an overstatement, democracy in Consumerism, yes, is that what this I think is? that's right. So I think that people, so we have in us this this desire to have a voice in outcomes, right? So democracy comes from that same impulse. Probably we don't think the next ice cream flavor is as important an outcome, but the psychology is still very similar, right? Yeah. The things are happening in the world, and I don't like feeling powerless about it. And I'd prefer to feel literally they use the word empowered. I'd prefer to be empowered as a customer and have a voice in it. And you know, you think of all these other teams, all these other football teams, or sports teams, because of uh, rethinking the the racism of the Native American stuff. I mean, we had these high schools that wanted to rename themselves in Massachusetts, in Massachusetts or the Washington Redskins. People get very upset about changing those names or about uh, what they're going to rename the team. I mean, they're going to stick with the Washington Redskins, but I don't remember what that... It was a Dedham school, wasn't it, that renamed it? Natick, I think. Natick. I'm not sure what it was. In any case, 877-301-8970. Give us your two cents. I don't know if you know this example. I don't know I read it either in your research today or in an accompanying article. The Seattle Sounders, I guess they're a soccer team or something. Oh, you're nodding. Then you tell the story. Yeah, so this is so, t- so Tammy Kim, my uh, co author, is from Seattle. Oh, she is. And she? So, she? She. Okay. And so she, the Seattle Sounders, are this radically transparent organization where the fans get to vote on everything, including, I, I think this is still the case, but it was certainly the case a few years ago, including things like who's the general manager. So they actually have complete control over every single outcome. They can so they vote on the uniforms and all that kind of stuff. But they actually let them, like Ben and Jerry's, doesn't let you vote on who's running Ben and Jerry's, but they let you vote on the flavors. The Seattle Sounders have been completely open, and it's been very successful for them, where the fans feel incredible ownership. And the other example that some people might think of is is the Green Bay Packers, where people in Green Bay own shares. They actually do the own Packers. the team, right? So it's it, that's not voting; that's actual ownership. But again, the you can the loyalty of Packers fans is, I would say, disturbing, probably because it's negative 100 degrees and they're out there with cheese on their head. But the the feeling of getting in, of having a voice, of having a say, is really really powerful. So does this? If you're asked to vote again, not just feedback, which can be ignored, but to vote on an issue relating to a product or a set of products or buy a company, 
does it feel you more connected and does it make you feel more connected? And are you more likely to buy that thing, to use that thing, if you are respected and invited in? I am absolutely a sucker for this. Big time. We want to know if you are. 877-301-8970. You know something? It was the native red men, and I believe they are now the the native red hawks. So is that change. true? Yeah, I, I, I believe that is now correct, yes. Nice research. 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. So were you from Natick? Were you hysterical when they renamed the high school team? They went from the Natick Redmen. There was a big controversy about that, remember, to the Native, Native Red Hawks. Perhaps there are some Stanford University graduates out there that were beside themselves when they didn't get the chance to rename the sports teams Natick. The Stanford Robber Barons, 877-301-8970. Let's start with Robert in the car. Hi, Robert. Hey, Robert. How you doing? Good. Uh, yeah, my question, I just have a question, not a comment. Sure. Uh, how, does he, how does he think it figures in when people respond to an election or something that they lose that the, that the whole process was uh, rigged and, and uh, disingenuous from the start? You mean in a corporate um, setting, in a consumer kind of setting? Yeah, yeah, okay. in, in that setting, yeah. How about it? I think So we have, um, implicitly or explicitly, we have expectations when we vote for things. So we, we have this this feeling of how things are supposed to go when voting is involved. And absolutely, one of the principles that's really, really important is, is this idea, of, it's not a great uh, word, but non-suppression, the idea that whatever the outcome is will be honored. And when people say an election was rigged, often what, they, what they're feeling is that there was an outcome but it wasn't actually honored. They they hid some of the votes. They counted them. If you think about electoral transparency in other countries, you literally send people to stare at people counting ballots because you want to make sure that whatever the outcome is, is actually honored. And when people when feel like that's not honored, that's exactly when people use words like rigged and they get very, very upset. Uh, Robert, thank you for your call. 877 8970. Before we take the next call, did you say that this is becoming a big thing in corporate America, not just an occasional thing in corporate America? It, it really is. And I think I mentioned just briefly, but partly it's just because it's so easy now. You can just, with right, Twitter, right, right. you can get a couple hundred thousand votes on something and you're off to the races. So it's easier to do, but then it's also easier to be co opted by a Bodie McBoatface kind of thing because, you know, in the old world, you'd have to write something on a thing and mail it in. And I didn't know what you suggested and you didn't know what I, you know, mm-hmm. we couldn't find out. Now, if I suggest Bodie McBoatface, I can blast it out to everyone in the world. <laughs> so it's it's easier and more dangerous at the very same time. How clever was the person that came up with that, by Bodie the way? McBoatface, I, mean, it doesn't I love get, it. It really is great. Lee and Marlboro, you're on with Michael Norton from Harvard Business School. We're talking about being able to vote as a consumer. Lee, welcome to the show. Hey, well, we've done something uh, that we call the Revolutionary Superheroes, and we picked five. We published that, and we put it out as a poster and a T-shirt and so forth. And um, after we did that, people said, well, what about this individual and what about that one? And so what we were going to do, or what we've done is gone to Facebook, asked for suggestions. We've gotten a whole range, and then we're going to use ranked choice voting to add 12 more. So the next time we do T-shirt stickers, posters, and so forth, they'll have – 17 individuals. So we started with George Washington, uh, Benjamin Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, uh, and John Adams and Abigail. And we'll add 12 to that based on ranked choice voting. Before you, uh, Michael, reacts to what you said, who is we that you referred to, Lee, several times? Oh, this is a, a little company called The History List. And we sell things focused on people to people who love history. And we also oh. do something called 
history camp, which happens in March 14th in Boston. Wow, that's pretty that's great. Neat. Did you get Did you get any ridiculous entries like I, this, like Benedict Arnold or something, as being a revolutionary <laughs> superhero? Well, you know, he actually was. Uh, he's actually doing pretty well for the for our cause for a while there, wasn't he? Yeah, true, he? true. Um, no, no, we didn't. Um, there were people who kind of missed the concept in some cases in, in terms of suggesting people beyond that era. But it was, you know, uh, Phyllis Wheatley, right? It was more obvious ones like Paul Revere and so forth. And one of my goals in doing this was to ex- increase the knowledge, expand the knowledge of all of these characters. Some people, again, are obvious and well-known, the story of the people who were involved in uh, the revolution is really fascinating, and it's quite broad. And I think this is a way to educate more folks. By the way, Lee, that's very parallel to the naming of the boat. It was a similar goal to raise consciousness around this. Lee, that was a great call. Thanks you know, for making it. Greg said that they named an autonomous submarine, Bodie McBoatface, on the Attenborough. Maybe to placate? They did. They so, did? Yes. Yeah, so they chose David Attenborough because they figured the most beloved, <laughs> you know, figure uh, that that was like mm-hmm. the safest one. And then they, as a sort of, you know, we we care what you think. They, I think it was a life, re- something like that, <laughs> yeah. a smaller vessel yeah, on smaller that. Yeah, a smaller vessel. Maybe to placate the people that were so enraged. Exactly. About, and have you already mentioned Ozzy's Organics? No, no, I don't What's think so. That? Well, you're, you, you're the, tell us about Ozzy's Organics. Yeah, so we can actually, uh, you can, one thing we like to do in our research sometimes is, is make up companies, actually, and see what happens when we make up companies and really engage people. But what we, re- what we really want to see is not just that people say that they're upset, but that they do something differently, right? So you can, uh, what a company would care about is do you actually follow through and buy the product or do you tweet something negative or whatever it might be? And we can actually show in our research, first we can show that when you're allowed to vote and it goes well, as you were suggesting earlier, Jim, people love it. So you're more likely to buy the thing and say that's great and tell your friends when that goes well. But we can actually show that with real products that we're having you buy, if you vote and it doesn't go well, not that you lose, that's okay, but that they suddenly say, well, actually we decided that a couple of people in corporate are going to decide <laughs> instead – you're so angry that you'll you won't buy it. You'll tweet negative things. You'll get angrier than you possibly could have been with almost anything else the company will do. How pathetic are we? Vera and Waltham is actually engaged in this act of democracy. Vera, welcome to the show. Thanks for calling. Hi, thanks so much. A long time listener. I love you guys. Thank you much. Yeah, so I was just listening um, and thinking about how much I, lo- I love the vote. I love the voting. And I remember when I was younger, my very first time doing this was the M&M. And it was the vote for what color should the new M&M be. They I were remember. getting rid oh, of the yes. light brown. Yes. Yep. And I voted blue. And I was so, like, I, I couldn't imagine. And the other colors were just, like, ridiculous choices. I think they were always planning for it to be blue. But that, for me, was the first time. And I, just, I love it. I think it's really fun. I don't, I don't know that I use the word empowering, but it just makes these companies and products more fun for me. So did blue win, Vera? Yes. Blue won. And light brown is gone. Yeah. <laughs> That was and, 80s, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, I was really, really young. I might have even had to, like, call a 1-800 number to vote. <laughs> That's a great one. Vera, thanks uh, very much what for is, the what's story. What's a call? What's a call? I've never heard that <laughs> word. That's it. Yeah. It's like American Idol. People used to call for American Idol. They were very that suspicious too. that their vote, that things were rigged on American Idol as well. I don't know that they were, but there was uproar over that. They were voting for particular people. That absolutely is a great example that American Idol sometimes shifts who, what counts for what. 
So sometimes the calls can count for 50% and the judges are 50. Sometimes the calls count for more. And people get very, very upset because of this. You're not allowed to switch the rules. By the way, didn't that happen? <laughs> didn't right. I read that happened with the uh, MVP voting or something in the, the, one of the sports things for an all-star game or whatever? The fans vote was only a small percentage. And so, uh, let's, I don't know, 20% out of 100 and the other 80% were the coaches of the players. And as you suggested, the 20% factor, the fan vote was for X. And why ended up being the MVP. And apparently people went nuts like they did at Stanford. By the way, but Vera, who just hung up, did you hear the happiness in Vera's voice? Oh, yeah. For having the won the m M&M. and <laughs> No, I'm serious, but yeah. that so proves your point. But you also felt as though justice prevailed. I mean, really, who wants a light brown m M&M. and Yeah, they get red, they're orange, they're yellow. You want a green, a blue one. I mean, absolutely. Napa and Worcester, you're on Boston Public Radio with Michael Norton, Marjorie Egan, and me, Jim Browley. Hi. Hi, how are you? Excellent. Great. Good, good. Hey, I, uh, I just I wanted to say that, you know, I think they nailed it as far as getting interest, you know. So they had a name go viral, which means, you know, way, way more people, uh, you know, are following it. And, I mean, clearly they were not going to name the boat Bodie McBoat. But I feel like there's a way for these, you know, for these companies in this instance to save face. I mean, people love a sense of humor. Right. Yeah. You know, if they named all the all the life rafts, all the dinghies in, uh, and you know, lifeboats, Bodie McBoat, <laughs> you know, so they have Attleboro on the back of the ship. Exactly. And then, you know, I, I think it would have gone. I think it would have gone over great. Well, that is you guys, you and Marjorie were suggesting that is what they ultimately ended up doing to quell the masses. Was that not what happened there? That is right. And often companies try to find some way to honor it, but actually do the thing that they that they really wanted to do. No, no getting, thanks for the call. I'm getting emails from Natick and uh, we got it people, wrong, including Lucia. No, we, we didn't get it wrong, but that there's still very raw feelings in Natick about the change from the Redmen to the Red Hawks. Very, people very are touchy. upset that Redmen yes, was abandoned. Very touchy subject. Oy. Kathleen in Cambridge, you're on Boston Public Radio. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Hi, Jim and Marjorie. I'm so excited to talk to you. Thank you. Um, you're such a gift. Uh, um, oh, my goodness. I'm so glad I discovered you. You're so nice. Um, Thank you. I, can you tell I'm nervous? No. I'm calling about Cam- <laughs> I'm calling about Cambridge, Jim. Okay. And I'm going to tease you a little because the participatory budgeting budget is about a million dollars now. Okay. Um, yeah, which is much bigger. Um, but I was calling because I'm actually a little bit jaded about the process. And Why? I think it's because I looked into it a little bit more. And um, what I found was that as looking into how many people submitted various ideas, what happens to those ideas and the churn of wetting them to kind of the administration and that the person who ultimately curates the list that goes in front of the voter is the town manager or the city manager. Um, and there isn't a lot of um, clarity behind the process. So I think it made me feel a little bit cheated because I wish there was some sort of ombudsperson um, for people who submitted ideas to find out why their idea wasn't chosen over one of the 10 that makes it to the list ultimately. Um, And I think that kind of, uh, well, the good thing about it is that I'm much more educated about the way Cambridge works now and how city council, the, the weak mayor model um, and how the city manager really has so much power. But I think ultimately that makes me feel a little bit um, crestfallen about it. Too. Now, it Ka- doesn't seem. Kathleen, before you go sure. away, uh, this is a quiz for you. Who was the city, sure. city council candidate 20 years ago <laughs> who ran on a platform of one issue, which was converting <laughs> to a strong mayor system so that people knew who was running the city? Who would that have been, Kathleen? 
I'm, it predates me, but I'm going to guess Jim Browdy. Ding, That's ding, right. ding. You would be uh, correct. Yeah. Kathleen, don't go away. What's okay. your reaction to what Kathleen said okay. there? So Michael I, I, it's, it's, it really shows the phenomenon because uh, there's an issue of representation. So I thought that everyone in Cambridge counted equally in this process. And now you're telling me, not really, that, that there's some person in an office that counts much more than me. That's a big one. And this issue of suppressing, right? So there were things submitted that people wanted and you decided to just kick them out and not allow them in. But I will say what's so interesting when cities do this is that not uncommonly people get upset about the process. But the the alternative typically is that just the town manager decides without any input. So you have the, – the instead of the counterfactual being Cambridge citizens get to get whatever they want all the time, really the counterfactual is the town manager just does whatever he or she wants. <laughs> but because it feels like they told us they weren't going to do that – that's why we all get get so upset, even though, again, if they don't ask us anything, they're probably just going to do whatever they wanted anyway, right? So it's funny, and it, funny is not the right word, but it's unusual the way we get so angry, even though, in a sense, it's still better than nothing, but it just makes us feel so rotten about I it totally as it happens. I totally get that. No, Kathleen, that was an excellent call. Thanks for making it. I have some very good news. What's that? Apparently, the legacy of Bodie McBoatface lives on in Sweden, one of the happier countries. In the, in the, is Sweden the happier country? I think country? it's one of the top Norway. three, isn't it? You're the anyway, money guy. You yeah. should know. Yeah. yeah. Well, it lives on because apparently an express train running between two, and thank you, for, Tyler, for alerting me to this, between two major Swedish cities uh, has been named Trainy McTrainface <laughs> <laughs> after the railroad company opened up the name to a public vote wow. with the Swedish newspaper Metro. And it got 49% training McTrain face, got 49% of the boat, vote, and they painted a face on the front of the train, which looks a little bit like Thomas the Tank Engine, you know? <laughs> you know, it just occurred to me, I, I'm going to get this half right. Didn't, what's that, Northwest Territory, is that what it's called in uh, in Canada? Northwest something or other. Isn't that what it's called, Northwest Territory? I don't know. Wasn't there a vote to rename it Bob? Well, am I not right about Can someone look that up? I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. That sounds familiar, yeah. But by the way, is this story that Chelsea typed on the screen true, by the way? Do we know this? Is this true? What Chelsea, our leader, <laughs> You're right. said. You're right. What's that? That, that, that um, the Northwest Territories did briefly consider a name change in 1996 until a group of pranksters hijacked the process. It was Bob, in order right? To have Bob emerge <laughs> as one of the most popular choices. Upgraded. So, Chelsea, who's our leader here, said, a cl- I assume this is true, even though I don't think Marjorie's going to remember this either. Oh Classic example is when GBH asked us what Boston Public Radio should be named. And they ignored everything and came up with, that's so Boston? Is that they what? did? And what happened to that? I don't remember. I don't know either. But if she says goodness, it, it that. must be true. Okay, so before you go away. We should uh, name us Bob. They... Welcome to Bob Public Radio. So, I'm going to uh, be on Bob later today. You always have a talk uh, uh, takeaway. I mean, what's the moral of the story there, Michael Norton? I think for us this research is is interesting because, number one, it really sort of unpacks how we feel about voting in general, right? So that there's these... Principle. So we all get upset about voting from time to time for many reasons, but we can actually think sort of systematically, well, what is going wrong and what's being violated so that when violations happen, we can maybe try to address them. And I think the other big lesson is these things are incredibly fun for many people. Mm-hmm. You get to be creative. You get to have input. You get to vote. Companies get excited about it. As we said, you can learn a lot that you wouldn't otherwise learn. But they are incredibly risky at the same time because Bob isn't so terrible. <laughs> But there are examples, which we won't talk about on the air, that are offensive or horrible. And so you get one person decides to be that 
person and then other people pile on. And now you have a huge crisis on your hands that you could have avoided by just saying it's going to be a blue M&M. And just that's it. I can't yeah. believe what you do for a living, by the way. Every time you're here, it is it is amazing. Someone's going to do really, it, Jim. I love it. It's, I, in, it's important work. It needs to be done. Well done, Michael Norton. It's professor, it's professor Mick, Professor Fake. <laughs> I, what's the? I, I don't know. Radio Mick Radio Face. Nice to see you, Professor. Good to Thank see you, Michael Thank you very Norton. much, Michael. Michael Norton joins us every month. He's the Howard M. Brealey Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School. His latest book is Happy Money, The Science of Smarter Spending. He's also co-host of the podcast. And by the way, I love your podcast. It's great. Talking Green which explores the psychological forces that drive attitudes and decisions around money and investing. That's Talking Green. Michael, thank you very much. Coming up, Andrew Cabral is here for this week's edition of Law and Order. Keep your dial on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy, Marjorie, and Donald Trump has been boasting about his progress on criminal justice reform, is reducing Roger Stone's sentence recommendation, an example of that at work. Here with us in Studio 3, and I'm telling the truth, the first person I thought of that I wanted to talk to after I heard the story was our next guest, is Andrew Cabral. Andrew is the CEO of Ascend, former Suffolk County Sheriff, former Secretary of Public Safety. Andrew, it's good to see you. Good to see you, too. The She's end is nigh. The um, end is nigh. Just in case people don't know about what happened here, uh, four prosecutors withdrew uh, from the case of uh, Roger Stone. He's a longtime, Roger Stone Jr., he's a longtime friend and advisor of President Trump. After senior Justice Department officials intervened in recommending a more lenient sentence for crimes, he had committed, and they included things like threatening a witness. You know, he was going to kill his dog. The guy said he didn't really believe he was going to kill his dog, but it was uh, threatening a witness, obstruction of justice. It was a lot of pretty bad things, and they and um, I, we're dying to get your take on this. Well, uh, you know, it, it, calling it intervening is probably um, the most work that word will do all year. Uh, it's it's a it's a euphemism. I mean, they're 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 helping to obstruct justice. Anybody who knows anything about the U.S. Attorney's Office um, uh, knows that it operates actually a lot like a state AG's office in terms of the kinds of approvals and who you have to let know that you're about to do something in court, right? So no assistant U.S. attorney walks into court without everyone knowing exactly what has been going on in that case in terms of supervisors and higher-ups and knowing exactly what's going to be recommended. Because essentially, when you're doing a case uh, from the U.S. Attorney's Office, you are, it is the United States of America versus the defendant. So it's very important throughout that entire federal agency that people know, especially if the defendant is high profile. So first of all, this sentence didn't come as a surprise to any of the higher-ups. Okay, I'm sure that there was plenty of of documentation about what was going to be recommended and what was recommended was within the guidelines. And essentially what happened here and you I'm sorry, I I cannot recall. um, I think there was one other case recently and it was in the Trump administration. But before the Trump administration, I do not recall a, a, a federal prosecutor withdrawing from a case over the politicization of that case in my career. And so they basically told these prosecutors, no, you know, this is Trump's friend. 
So that's why he doesn't get the sentence. If there was a reason, a substantive reason why Roger Stone did not deserve this sentence, they would have been very clear. They got tons of phone calls from the media asking them to explain it, and they didn't. They haven't explained it yet. Trump tweeted he didn't like it, and the next thing you know, that sentence is being changed. By the way, it's really important. You just said we we were remiss in not saying uh, this comes after the sentence recommendation, the seven or nine years. And by the way, it's a recommendation. The judge, is going if it's to, unjust, right. can say I'm only giving him two years. Right. I can give him probation, whatever he or I don't know if it's a judge. Or it's Amy Jackson. Or, oh, it's Amy Jackson. Okay, yeah. so she can give uh, uh, Stone whatever she wants. It is only after Trump reacts mm-hmm. to the sentence recommendation, you know, a horrible miscarriage of justice or whatever he said, that uh, that uh, the, US, the uh, Department of Justice decides to overrule their own prosecutors. Of course, they say, the, of course they say they of course they say they Trump had nothing to do with it. It's a lie. After, That's a lie. But after he does it, Trump praises right. Barr. I was for also remiss in not mentioning he, what the, what they said in their sentencing memorandum that he deserved the stiff sentence because this is Stone threatened a witness with bodily harm, uh, deceived congressional investigators, carried out an extensive deliberate illegal scheme including repeatedly lying under oath and forging docu- documents. Uh, he was charged in a felony indictment and he continued even after that, to try to manipulate the administration of justice, this is from the uh, sentencing memorandum, as I said, by threatening the judge, that was Judge Jackson, in a social media post and violating her repeated right. gag orders. And so every sentence that's recommended, you can either have mitigating or aggravating factors. So those are things that are typically considered as aggravating circumstances, many of them, and that might result in an enhanced sentence. But as Jim said, it's up to Judge Jackson to to, to hand out the sentence. So I want people to be really clear about exactly, you know, some of the method behind the madness with Barr and Trump on this. And this is, make no mistake, this is complete madness. They are objecting to a sentence um, and then ultimately causing it to causing the Department of Justice to back away from the recommendation, knowing that the judge has the right to impose the sentence. When Judge Jackson imposes whatever sentence she wants, and she's been the one that's been sitting on the trial, she was the one that was the object of the threat, he will then use the fact that if sentence of imprisonment was imposed, and I'm assuming that that's what Judge Jackson is going to do, to pardon Roger Stone. So every you just have to understand with this administration, they lie about everything. Anyone who says anything on behalf of this administration is lying. But it is almost always a way of feathering the nest they ultimately want to live in. And in this case, ultimately, he wants to pardon Roger Stone. So this is the softening up to get people to the point where they're not even really surprised when he pardons him, and they're much more likely to accept it. Can I make three observations about this? Because I think I'm as worked up about this as uh, you are in uh, many ways. Uh, one, too much focus, even though I think it's important we mentioned it, in the media has been on whether or not the seven- to nine-year recommendation fell within the sentencing guidelines, which it does. The issue, to me, is not that. The issue is political interference exactly. in the justice system. Number two, and I don't care what your politics are, there's no more respect I have for people than those who decide to leave their jobs or leave a case or out of principle. And by the way, I would feel the same way if people did it for the reverse political re- If you're willing to sacrifice right. because of your principle. I mean, the thing I said to you when you walked in the studio and I mentioned to Juliet Kayyem in the wake of the Friday Night Massacre, the fact that not one Republican that I'm aware of in the Congress has been able to say, I love Donald Trump, I love everything he does, but this 
is inappropriate. This damages the integrity and the trust the public has, which is critical right. to a justice system. The third thing, you were a former prosecutor. What kind of chilling effect does this Absolutely. have to the next prosecutor in a political case who knows that if I do what I think is right, I may have the president of the United States stepping all over my head here. I mean, it's huge. It's huge. And I think there are going to be other career officials of the you have know, the four prosecutors on the case. Three withdrew from the case, but are staying with the department. One has resigned from the department. It's amazing. And it probably is only a matter of time before the others end up leaving. Because keep in mind, Barr wanted the uh, U.S. attorney in D.C. to be one of his acolytes. But there was already a woman by the name of Lou who was the D.C. U.S. attorney. They removed her as the D.C. U.S. attorney, but to blunt criticism, offered her a job in the Treasury Department uh, doing, uh, you know, white-collar corruption. He just withdrew his nomination of her once he safely got her out of the D.C. U.S. attorney's office and installed Bill Barr's guy, and it should surprise no one that it was a guy, he then withdrew her nomination so she's a woman without a job because she left the D.C. circuit before uh, her nomination was confirmed. And so why wouldn't, if you, why wouldn't you, if you were a prosecutor, just assume that retaliation is just, you know, minutes away for anything, anything you did when you stand on principle? But, how, you know, I feel for the career professionals in the DOJ because there are people who have been working in the DOJ who got appointed, you know, two presidents back um, – who are who are nonpartisan, who just work on behalf... Because the DOJ is supposed to be the system of justice for the American people. Correct. There is none of that. They are completely compromised. And if the, you know, as much as I know the House Judiciary Committee and other committees have on their plate, Bill Barr has got to be subpoenaed. The, re- the resigned AUSAs ought to be subpoenaed. There has got to be an investigation of this. Barr can be impeached. Elizabeth he Warren just himself. said she thought he should be he impeached. He should be impeached. He perjured, He clearly perjured himself, in, especially in response to Kamala Harris's questions, uh, when he was being examined then about whether or not he had been uh, instructed to uh, to investigate anyone. And he's, well, I'm not sure what you mean by instructed. And then he tried not to answer the question. It, what is happening with the DOJ? Like you said, I don't care who you are. If you don't get what your politics are. If you don't get what is happening with the DOJ and don't see how this is ultimately going to be marked in history as one of the major points, a benchmark um, for the timeline in which democracy failed in the United States, you're not seeing it right. This is gigantic. By the way, it's not enough. I'm sorry. The president just congratulated Barr for interfering in the case. Yeah. Uh, There's one other uh, piece in terms of Attorney General Barr. There was a a, Lindsey Graham was on Face the Nation, I think, a, a week ago. And he says, this is a quote, the Department of Justice is receiving information coming out of the Ukraine from Rudy, meaning the personal lawyer of for the president. Uh. The attorney general told me that they've created a process that Rudy could give information and they would see if it's verified. So they have worked out the the Department of Justice has an arrangement with the private attorney of the president of the United States that he will, quote, investigate uh, uh, Ukraine. I assume Biden related things. He will report the information to the Justice Department directly and then they'll work to see if this is legitimate information you know it it is it is really yeah 
So this is the other half of my, yes, democracy is falling and it's starting with the Department of Justice. Yeah, it's really hard to find words to express just how serious and dangerous and uh, alarming and outrageous this is. So Rudy Giuliani, himself the target of a federal, uh, an FBI investigation. That's a wonderful point. I hadn't thought of that. So when was the last time the Department of Justice opened a door of any kind to a target of an investigation for illegal campaign contributions. You know, this is the guy whose two buddies get caught on their way, one-way ticket to Vienna at the airport, um, who's taken $500,000 from Dimitri Firtash, who was the guy, I believe, in Vienna that his two buddies were going to see. And Rudy is also the guy who let everybody know that everyone knew that something was coming in terms of the, the Russian hack of the DNC and had all this inside information from FBI, his FBI buddies about Comey going, opening up, reopening the investigation. He is also the president's personal attorney. That's the guy who the, the DOJ has opened the door to to give manufactured information on the president's political opponent. The president's personal attorney, who is the target, I will say it again, of himself the target of a federal uh, investigation, uh, who has a lot of his, you know, uh, all of his little fingers and all the little pies, is is being allowed entree into the DOJ, not under a grant of immunity, not already indicted himself and offering to cooperate to reduce his sentence. None of that has happened. That's the only way you work with a target. You work with a target when you have already indicted them, when they have already agreed to plead guilty, but they're cooperating, like um, uh, um, uh, Gates, um, whatever the guy's name that used to work with Manafort. No, he was uh, a Manafort's deputy at the yeah. uh, right. at the campaign. Yeah. This you don't do. This guy hasn't been indicted for anything yet. And if if and if history is any teacher, uh, Barr has already shut down any investigation of Giuliani. We just don't know about it yet because they won't confirm or deny it. And they are allowing him to do the very thing he was announcing that he was doing, which was going to Ukraine to work with a corrupt prosecutor to manufacture dirt about uh, Hunter and Joe Biden. These these are not little lines that are being crossed. These are massive, corrupt, scandalous, uh, uh, unethical, in my view, actionable, legally actionable behaviors by the DOJ. And it's the it's hair on fire moment, or as Chris Hayes said, it's time to break the glass. Um, this is a true emergency in this country that all of this is happening. And they confirmed it when Lindsey Graham first said it. The response was, well, you know, so, you know, Lindsey could have been, you know, just kind of, you know, talking out of his butt kind of thing. Like he didn't really know. And f- they kept asking the DOJ and the DOJ said, yes, Barr said we have opened up a process. So Lindsey Graham was not lying. And had the inside information about it, this U.S. senator, not the Judiciary Committee, not anybody else in Congress, but Lindsey Graham had the inside information from Bill Barr that Rudy was going to have an open door. We're talking to Andrew Cabral. Paul thinks that Roger Stone is on the top of the list for the next Medal of Freedom Award from it's the entirely <laughs> possible. <After his> pardon. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Andrew Cabral, uh, as you know, in uh, November at a black megachurch in Brooklyn— uh, the former mayor of New York City, now Democratic candidate or a, a contestant for the Democratic nomination and running against Donald Trump, uh, spoke about his stop and frisk policy and said, I was wrong. I am sorry. And the reason I tell you that is because I referenced that when we were talking earlier this morning to Mike Bloomberg's national spokesperson, who was nice enough to give us a buzz, Sabrina Singh. And here's what she had to say in reaction to that tape that came out a couple of uh, days ago, it originally had been out years ago, but it was a talk that he had given in Aspen in which uh, the uh, former uh, the former 
mayor of New York City, had uh, made some very serious comments. We'll read them to you in a second if you weren't listening before about why stop and frisk was a good idea. And here's what uh, Ms. Singh had to say to us this morning. Look, like you said, Mike has apologized for not fully understanding the full impact uh, the New York the NYPD's practice of stop and frisk had on black and brown communities. And I I really think that the mark of a leader is admitting the mistakes that you've made and apologizing. Um, And and so he did that. I think we have to remember that, look, he has apologized. He was wrong. um, And this is someone that is going to come into the White House. He's going to take the lessons he has learned from that time and grow from them. So here is what the uh, the he, in part he said at this, and we're not playing the sound only because it's very hard to understand. Bloomberg in 2015 said 95 percent of murders, murderers, and murder victims fit one mo. You can just take a description, xerox it, pass it out to all the cops. They are male, minorities, 16 to 25. It's true in New York. It's true in virtually every city. And one of the ways you get the guns out of the kids' hands is to throw them against the wall and frisk them. What do you think about the underlying statement? And what do you think about the reaction of the uh, Bloomberg campaign, Andrew Cabral. Well, (laughs) uh, let's start here that in 2020, um, I disagree respectfully with Ms. Singh. The mark of a leader is not the fact that they apologize as much as it is the mark of a leader recognizing that they've been caught doing something. Because, you know, he said it in 2015. Uh, Is he suggesting that he just realized that he didn't understand the impact back then? Is this a new revelation to him? Or is this something that he recognized shortly after he said it? In any event, he's just apologizing now. And they had actually sought to try to keep that that uh, audio from being released, and that didn't work. By the way, a re- the Daily Caller, which is a right-wing site, ultimately released the, the yeah. uh, audio. It was uh, He did try to suppress the audio from 2015. He did. And what's remarkable to me about it is that knowing that they were going to let it out, he didn't try to get ahead of it. And that he didn't say, look, this is, you're gonna, this, this is going to be released one way or the other. I, in fact, I'll release it myself. I did say this in 2015. The easiest thing, you know, if it's heartfelt to say is I was absolutely dead wrong. I'm ashamed that I said it. Um, I don't believe that. Um, I did believe that then. And I know I've, you know, I worked for a governor. I know that, you know, you you get handed information from the people that work with you and you go with it. If they're telling you this is the reason we do this is because this is where all the crime is, you say it. Bloomberg's problem, in addition to listening to that and not sort of figuring it out for himself, is that he went a little bit further. He sort of, in his comments, basically his comments embodied racial profiling. It's one description. You the people in who are committing in 2015, the people who are committing crimes, it's one description. You could Xerox it and hand it out, and you'd always have the suspect right every single time. I mean, his comments went beyond just getting information from the police department or, or whatever study they may have done internally to say, look, we're, this is why we have so many police in these neighborhoods is because this is where we feel they are the most effective. You know, this is where our statistics tell us the crime is happening. He talked about individual people, blacks and Latinos, as being responsible for murder and responsible for crime and, and mostly responsible for it, not just, you know, one or two. And there was more of him in those in those words than his apology or Singh's explanation or spin on his apology would indicate. Now, do I think that that Mike Bloomberg is is a racist like Donald Trump is a racist? Absolutely not. Um, but I will say that you know his comments were 
um, part what what he was what he was told by his I'm sure by his administration. But there was a lot of Mike in those comments too. It was how he felt then. He clearly those were heartfelt words. And I don't know that the apology is going to well, cut it. You know, and he also said, um, "Throw them up against the wall and frisk exactly. them." Exactly, was a very dehumanizing. Like, and to say to you don't know what the impact the of that is—that yeah. you're suggesting that that's okay to yep. do—and who's them? Well, it's 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 young black men between nineteen and twenty-four, fifteen and twenty-four, whatever it is. And by the way, there was a statistic in two thousand nine that found that um, while the uh, young men of color were nine times more likely to be stopped, they were no more likely to be arrested. So otherwise, obviously, they were being stopped. Right. So he nothing. should have known. And I remember Diane Wilkerson, who used to be a state senator here, um, talking about her sons. Because um, remember during the Charles Stewart. Oh yeah. This is a long time ago, yeah. but that was in the context of the crack epidemic and yep. stuff like that. And Charles Stewart identified a black guy that killed his wife, as people remember. He put a bullet in the back of his own wife's head. They were leading a birthing class at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. But there was rampant stopping and frisking sure. all through Mission Hill, and it became a huge issue here. And I remember her talking about the impact of that on her neighbors and her sons. Right. And it was always an issue, but it became exacerbated due to the high-profile pro- nature of the case. I, But I do, I mean, I know you want to ask me a question, but I do have a suggestion for Mr. Bloomberg as to how he can... I was going, that was what my question was, was going to be. Really? No, if you don't think he's a racist, and it's 2020, and even if you were totally right that he's apologizing because he got caught, what does he do other than say, I'm retiring from public life because, I mean, what Singh went on to say to us, by the way, and I'm not saying it's adequate, but what she did say to us is he, I can't think, is it Greenwood Initiative? I can't think of what the term is. There's a, a, an initiative like that. that he has started, which he says will put a, a million more African-Americans into homes. He talks a lot about mm-hmm. the wealth inequality. We know a lot about that in Boston, needless to say, between white Americans and African, uh, African-Americans. What should he be doing? Well, I, and I think the Greenwood Initiative is fantastic, and that's why I don't put him in the category of, okay. of, uh, of Donald Trump, because he actually does use um, his money for good. But what I think he can do in the immediate term. Uh, so there are there have been a, a number of Democratic governors in mostly southern states who have um, signed into law bills that uh, eliminate the um, civic disenfranchisement of felons. In other words, in some states, if you were convicted of a felony, you could never vote again. There have been a series of Democratic governors that have uh, signed uh, laws uh, prohibiting that. What Republican legislatures in those states have done is uh, is passed legislation that says you can you can vote when the case is over, but the case isn't over as long as you have outstanding fines and fees. Yeah. Well, so poor Florida people Florida cannot. The Constitution right. was amended. Poor by people the people, can't afford right. it. So for for one of two hundred dollars, uh, someone a woman can be you know permanently disenfranchised from voting because long after she has served her time or done her probation or whatever she was required to do, she can't vote. If he really wants to balance the scales on stop and frisk, pay them all. Pay all of those poll taxes. Oh, hire a bunch of graduate students. Good put them idea. in all the different states because you're going to have to do it individually. No state is just going to accept a giant check from Michael Bloomberg. It's got to be a payment per case. So hire a bunch of grad students that want to work on this. Send them into every state where this is happening. With a check, each of them with the authority yes. to pay it. Have the clerk's offices pull all of the cases where there is nothing but outstanding fines and fees, assuming that they're not victim witness fees, which right. really should go to, to, you know, that's related to a violent crime, but simple, regular court fees and fines and pay every single one. All of those people will be able to vote and you will be saying, 
to the public, for the people uh, who I gave a dim view of government service and law enforcement because of what I allowed police to do and stop and frisk in New York. I am now trying trying to reenfranchise people who are historically disenfranchised by the system. Can I tell you something? I'm going to be hated for what I'm about to do. What? Because I love the concept. I think it might be illegal. Why? Because it is illegal to give compensation for somebody, I believe, who you want to vote. And don't you think a court could determine, even though you're not saying if you were enfranchised, I'm saying the only way you get your fees paid off is if you vote for me. Do you not think a court well, might determine? Say that. Well, I understand say that. that. If, if that's the barrier, then you make sure you make a contribution to a nonprofit that does that work one. anyway. And they decide. Uh, and they decide uh, who one. they decide okay. to go in. But I think, I actually I like think it. that, um, yeah, will somebody run into court and say that you can't do it? Of course. Go, it's not like he can't afford lawyers. And if that if it does get challenged and there's no injunction, go ahead and keep paying them. Go ahead and keep paying them. But if you ha- but if but if if there's a concern about that, find a not for profit that does that work anyway and give them the money to do it. Specifically, uh, um, uh, restrained uh, money, restricted money that only goes for that, so that you can make sure that people are able to vote. It's clearly a response to voter suppression by the GOP legislatures, and you can make that sort of argument in a court, I guess. But do something along those lines. I think that's a brilliant idea. I think you should call it back but up. You, but your her. point is well taken because because people will make the argument that he's trying to buy votes more than he is trying to buy, uh, trying to get, you know, to reenfranchise people. And that, that could potentially be a problem. So I get your point. Andrea, it's great to see you. Good to see you, too. Thank you very much, Andrea Cabral. I like your idea. Andrea Cabral joins us every week. Jim's going to call the spokesperson back after the show. I may. Know. Andrew Cabral joins us every week for an edition of Law and Order. She's the CEO of Ascend and former Suffolk County Sheriff and Secretary of Public Safety. Andrew, thank you very much. Coming up, we continue our primary conversation with you. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. The whittling has begun. The Democratic field now is down three people. Deval Patrick, Michael Bennett, Andrew Yang. We'll take your calls on all things primary, particularly post-New Hampshire, or if you want to reflect on New Hampshire. But with your permission, Marjorie, I would love to add, if anybody has any thoughts on this Roger Stone thing that we were just discussing with Andrea Cabral, I'm obsessed with it, and I have a feeling some of our listeners may be too. If you want to weigh in on that as well, sort of a potpourri kind of thing for the next 15 minutes, uh, we would be happy to have you do that. 877-301-8970. Or if you want to react to both... Uh, 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 the uh, Sabrina Singh, who is the national spokesperson for Bloomberg, or Andrea's reaction to uh, Bloomberg and the stop and frisk situation. All that's on the table for the next few minutes. Eight seven seven. Thank you for asking my permission. Three zero one. But you didn't answer, so uh, I assume no, it's no, okay. I'm giving you my permission now. You did. Yes, you that's may. So nice. That's <laughs> yes, you really may. You may so proceed nice. along those lines. Thank you very much. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine. Suppose I said 70. no. It was too late. Anyway. We had already proceeded. I mean, if you had spoken more quickly <laughs> oh, okay. and had registered a complaint, I would have considered it, but no more. Michelle, you're in Barrington, Rhode Island. You're on Boston Public Radio with Marjorie again and me, Jim Browdy. Thank you much for calling. Hi. Absolutely love, love your show. Listen Thanks. to it every day. Oh, thank day. you. Very nice. But I have, um, I have a comment about Michael Bloomberg. Sure. I can tell you, I lived as a, I was a nurse in uh, 
New York City at New York Hospital in 1978 mm-hmm. and 77, around the time that Son of Sam was there. Oh, yep. gosh. And Times Square looked like a, you know, a war zone. It was horrible. Now my daughters live there. One lives, actually works at New York Hospital, and the other lives in Westchester now, but was in the village. And I can tell you, they really believe that Michael Bloomberg cleaned up that city and made that city safe. And I understand that stop and frisk was not really a good policy. To me, they should have just had more policemen there. But... um, it did change the climate and change the whole mindset of how New Yorkers feel about their city. And I feel as a parent about my daughters being there. And whatever he did, he made that place a livable place again. And um, But at the expense, I, I really but Michelle, if I can, at the expense of, of creating some greater racial division. I'm not quarreling with your kids' reflection on the quality of life in the city, but uh, people of color in the city, at least some people of color in the city, uh, were not feeling as good about it as your kids did. No, I understand that completely. But I have to tell you, sometimes it takes a firm hand, just as it does with a child, to really say, unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And I, again, I do not believe in stop and frisk and targeting. I think they should have stopped and frisked everyone, quite frankly, (laughs) if you really want to know my, you know, anybody 15 to 25, they look at the statistics, they look at whatever, um, you know, he was working with what he had at the time. And I don't believe in it. I'm certainly not a racist. Um, And I just think there has to be some credit to that. Got it. You know, sometimes our. No, I, no, we do. I'm, I'm not. Uh, we yeah. hear you. And I'm just not sure stop and frisk, which is a was a racist policy, had anything to do with cleaning up. Well, so I'm with a lot about, you know, homeless people and a lot of the squeegee stuff, and a lot of that was Rudy Giuliani too. A lot of people remember the squeegee people. Of that course, people complain about all the time. But you know, the other thing, Michelle, is I think what people are reacting to, particularly in that 2015 Aspen talk, is not just. The defense of the policy and you throw them up argue, against the wall. But right, throwing them up against the wall thing is really loaded. And uh, at least I'll tell you, my personal reaction was more about his language than uh, than just the policy. But Michelle, thank you for your call and, and your point and, of view. We appreciate what it. that looks like. You know, imagine if that was your kid and some cop gets out and throws your kid against the wall and starts frisking him and touching him all over his body. How humiliating and demeaning and dehumanizing that is. I mean. I, you know, I don't want anybody stopping and frisking anybody without a reason uh, to do it, and that was and, but, one of the problems. Because as, as the statistic shows, um, these people weren't getting arrested; for them. they were just getting frisked. They weren't and, had, didn't have guns on them or weapons on them. It was just a, a harassment thing. Yes. And by the way, uh, I I think in terms of context, I hope I'm right about. It. I think he his mayoralty ended in 2013, so he did have some time to reflect upon this. So his comments at Aspen that uh, we were talking about a couple of minutes with uh, Andrea and then earlier in the show with uh, Michael Bloomberg's national spokesperson on his campaign. Right. He was mayor from 2002 to 2013. So this was two years after he had time to think. In any yeah. case, uh, uh, the one place where I guess I have a slight disagreement with Andrea, even though I love her plan, and I agree with Sabrina Singh, is the guy appears to have made a heartfelt apology. It is rare in politics for someone to say, uh, I was wrong. The thing I'm troubled by, as she is, is he said those things once it was out there and he was running for president, uh, the original statement in November, rather than 
earlier when he had whatever epiphany he had. But he did apparently, at least on the surface, had one. Molly in West Newbury. Hi. Yes, I was listening uh, to the segment with Andrea Cabral, and there is a group in Florida. It's a nonprofit. It's called the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. Really? Uh, one of the gentlemen uh, that was on the Pod uh, Save America or Pod Save uh, the yeah. World uh, was discussing it the other day. And it is uh, raising money to help the disenfranchisement of uh, and discrimination of people with convictions. So he could make a contribution to that, obviously. Contribution to, exactly, and it's a nonprofit. Florida Rights, I'm looking it up now, Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, is that what you're talking about? Correct. Great. That is at FRRC. We really appreciate the information, Molly. Thanks so much for listening. Yeah, and thank you very telling much. Telling us about it. Florida Keith, Rights Restoration Coalition. Keith and Newbreport, hi. Hello, Keith. Hi there. First time caller. Thanks thank you. for taking the call. Thank you. Um, the This has to do with the primary discussion earlier on. Sure. I'm concerned that, that people are not taking into consideration the down-ballot implications of their presidential choice as they go in. Defeating Trump is going to be absolutely essential. It's necessary. But it's not sufficient. We also need to take the Senate and build the lead in the House. And if you choose a presidential candidate who is not going to have coattails and bring others along with him, especially from moderate districts like the ones that were flipped in 2018, we're not going to have effective wind and Trumpism will continue. You know, Keith, we were talking yesterday to Senator Bennett yesterday morning on the radio, who was obviously a senator from Colorado, who was then a candidate for president. He has since dropped out after the results came in yesterday. And, you know, James Carville, who obviously is mostly of Bill Clinton fame, who's a supporter of Bennett's, uh, made the exact same comments you did. And much more colorfully, because that's how he speaks, talked about having somebody, and I'm not embracing this, I'm just repeating it, uh, having uh, someone, a democratic socialist, I think he said, at the top of the ticket when uh, men and women are running for the Senate in places like Florida and Michigan and uh, other states he mentioned, Alabama, I guess, with Doug Jones, uh, is not only not a help to the ticket, he suggests, but a drag on the ticket. So his point, I guess, was even if you uh, support Bernie Sanders, which he does not, uh, that the drag is uh, is troubling or as problematic as he would argue Sanders' candidacy is. Keith, thank you for uh, your perspective. We appreciate it. 877-301-8970. John from Gardner. Hi, John. Hey, John. Hey, kids. Right off the bat, all kidding aside, you guys did great work up there. Oh, thanks. Week. Oh, thank you. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. We're Actually, I have a quick there. thought on your, your show specifically last night, Jim, if yep. you give me a second at sure. the end. You know the Roger Stone thing, Jim? I was outraged as you. First thing I thought, Marjorie, I don't know anything about this judge other than she's a woman. I said, hmm, we still got to hear from the judge. Is there any chance this woman might step up and, and zip it to old Roger, even though it'll probably be turned around on appeal? I don't know. I well, don't know. She you, tried to get him to adhere to the gag orders, and I think she threatened yeah, him with jail. Lives a couple of times. Well, you would hope. Uh, I mean, even though I have some of the emotional feeling you do, John, the hope is that judges make determinations on the merits. Right. And, you know, rather than trying to send a me- You know, the fam- most famous sending a message uh, sentence, do you remember, was what was the name of the judge in the, uh, the uh, Gagan uh, case? 
He was the priest. Oh, yeah. yeah. Who had done Constance somebody? And I'm, I'm embarrassed to say Whatever I keep her name forgetting was, her when, name. when Gagan, who was a priest, was sentenced, he had done a lot of horrible, horrible, horrible things for which he was right. not indicted for a variety of reasons. He was ultimately indicted for patting. Constance Sweeney. Thank you. A young man on the behind in a pool. And I'm not minimizing how serious that is, but it was pretty clear. And he was ultimately killed in prison when he was sentenced. He was uh, sentenced well beyond what most people thought the crime in question merited, but sentenced for the crimes that he had never been prosecuted for. And I'm sure Judge Sweeney would deny that that's what she did, but every legal observer felt that that was the case. So we'll see what Judge Jackson does. She also ordered Cardinal Law to be deposed. She did. Good for her. Mm -hmm. But go ahead, John. Sadly, I I missed most of your show today, but I was on the road heading home, and I heard you talking to that, what was it, Judge Bob? (laughs) No, Judge uh, Jay. Uh, uh, He was a judge in Texas. He now lives in Rhode Island. I had a disturbing thought about what what was the final turnout last night, by the way. I've been out of touch. My understanding, and can someone in the control room correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was very analogous to Iowa. I believe that it was slightly higher oh. than 2016, oh. but not nearly it's as not high huge. as 2008, me, uh, which is troubling to the Democrats. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I had a troubling thought. I wonder how many people – remember how people didn't want to admit they were for Trump? And, we, and that's, we think, how some of the polling was – In so 2016, yeah. I'm wondering if people are peeking at their 401ks and are having some thoughts. I'll admit that thought has crossed my mind, although it wouldn't sway my vote. I wonder how many people are having a sneaky thought about how good the 401ks are doing. Well, we, uh, by the way, your argument and mine were just destroyed by one of our coworkers. says National Public Radio is reporting that the turnout was actually higher good. than 2008. The results are still filtering in. 93% people- of precincts reported turnout has now surpassed. Uh, is this according to the Secretary of State? Oh, this is an NPR report, the 2008 record. So obviously that's a great, not only relief, but, uh, uh, but you it's know a what? big plus for the Democrats. You know, I, I, I want to have a good 401k as much as anybody, but is that really the trade-off? I mean, is that what it comes down to? That you're gonna... I think a lot of, well, I mean, it's the economy, stupid. We know I from know, that same know, campaign with Garville. But it's Garville. one thing if you are unable to put food on the table and you're really struggling. It's another thing if you're... You know, you're voting for someone because you're going to have 50 grand or 100 grand more in your 401k? Well, some people, yeah, I think I'm not embracing it or criticizing it, but some people think he has made me more secure in the long term than I was prior to him. And so I may not like some of the things, but I'm going to. Well, you also have to remember that when your 401k started to improve, it was a long time ago. Yeah, but I I understand that. John, you wanted to make one last quick thought about something. I forgot what it was. What was it? Yeah, I was just disappointed. Emily didn't wear a little cowboy hat last night. (laughs) Oh, Emily Emily Rooney did have a great black leather cowboy hat. She does. But she didn't wear it on air. She was wearing it around uh, downtown Manchester and where I can't remember where she went to the polling place. I don't remember. I think it was in Hanover, New Hampshire. May have been. In any case, 877-301-8970. Just a couple more minutes on the Roger Stone embarrassment or on uh, post-primary thoughts, if you have those. Uh, where do you want to go, Marjorie? Doug in Providence. Thank you for calling. Hello, Doug. Yes, good uh, Good. Good afternoon. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to go back to a couple weeks ago when Marjorie made a comment about Bernie Sanders' hair and wishing she he would comb his, comb his hair. And... Uh, you know, that was like, why? Why is she saying that? And I thought, well, um, would Marjorie say that about 
a woman candidate if the woman candidate's hair was out of place. So that's a question. That's a question for Marjorie. However, oh, that, well, you want me to answer the question, Doug? I think yeah, we, I think we talked incessantly about Hillary Clinton's hair. How many times did we talk about her renewed hairdos? I mean, that was the, well, like I that was I the... missed Taylor Hillary Clinton's hair. Well, but I, I, gosh, Doug. By the way, I want to correct you. You said Marjorie <laughs> mentioned that weeks ago. Marjorie actually mentioned that I think it was yesterday, yesterday. the day before. Oh, yesterday. To his, so no, excuse yesterday. me. No, no, no. She didn't just say it on air. She said it to the chief strategist in the Sanders campaign, <laughs> well, I said Jeff Weaver. It was part of his authenticity, Doug. <laughs> yes, I said, you know, the guy comes out there, he hasn't combed his hair. It's like he doesn't give a damn, and it's part of his so, authenticity. Listen. So what? listen. So listen. So, you know, you two, I've been listening to you two for quite a while, and yeah. you're great because you help with – you help with my time in the car a yeah, lot, and um, so I appreciate that so much. But I wondered what you two looked like because I never knew. Because I had this visual image of both of you and what you two looked like, and? so I looked you up, mm-hmm. and I was very, very surprised. So I'm not going to make any comment about how you both look because I don't, I don't do that. That's not my. Well, well, well you left us hanging. Though. Maybe it's better you leave us hanging, actually, Doug. <laughs> Jim, but I think, but I think to make a comment like that about a about about somebody who is pouring their heart and soul into a presidential race that has so much, it's so much is so much is is at stake here, and we know. We know because we, we see. We Doug, see I got to cut you Doug, off. You gotta, you gotta, she is you joking. Gotta, you got to lighten up a little bit, though. If you don't think what a candidate looks like matters, I mean, you got to come into the 20th century. I Why think that's think... part of his thing, by the way. I think it actually helps him. I think it but fits his whole shtick. But I mean, Doug, thanks for the we call. We are constantly talking about what candidates candidates look like. I mean, how much time do we spend talking about Mitt Romney when he was running for president? Amy Klobuchar has got herself a new hairdo and it looks quite terrific. So, um, Doug, I, I got to disagree. You know. You, you may think it's super, it may be superficial, but um, people talk about it nonstop. By the way, Weaver was not only not offended. How much have we talked about Weaver's the reaction? Weaver's reaction to you was to say when people try to comb his hair before he goes on the debate stage, didn't he say to you he doesn't like it? He doesn't like it. Well, that, that was my point. So he is authenticity. But I think there's been volumes written about the hairdo of Donald Trump. Is there not? Well, let me tell you, one of the photographs that came out last week, I wasn't going to mention, I'm sure you've all seen it, with mm-hmm. his hair blown back, is one of the great, fo- I don't know who took it, but it's one of the great photographs of our time. Okay, coming up, it's time for something completely different. Ahead of Valentine's Day, we're going to get our chocolate fix, and I'm really hoping they've got a lot of chocolate for me to eat, with the founders of Taza Chocolate. They are next on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Brody, Marjorie. And if you are sick of hearing about polling percentages, it's time for a break. 
How about percentages of cacao in your chocolate bar instead? That's why Alex Whitmore and Kathleen Fulton are with us for a pre-Valentine's Day chocolate fix. Alex is the founder and CEO of Taza Chocolate. Kathleen is Taza's chief design officer. She designs all the fabulous packaging. They make their bean-to-bar stone ground chocolate just outside Somerville. It's great to see you both again. How are you guys doing? So good to be back. We love we love coming to your studio. And we thank God, if you, you hadn't brought some chocolate samples, I was going to like have a meltdown completely. We, we knew you needed about, it. I've been thinking about this chocolate all day, and I'm now digging into the sea salt and almond. It was absolutely uh, delicious. So tell us a little bit. We've, we've asked you this before, but tell us the story about your being over there with the, um, the hard... The, how, how this happened for you? Start with that. How this all began? Give me a piece of chocolate while you're. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So Taza Chocolate, uh, we're you. we're a bean to bar chocolate maker based right in Somerville, right here in the Boston area. We've been around for almost 15 years now, and uh, uh, we're really we're really stoked to be uh, the only bean to bar chocolate maker in the Boston area, and uh, we're also. Uh, one, we're also the first bean-to-bar chocolate maker to be totally transparent and direct with all of our cocoa sourcing. So uh, amazing uh, uh, time that I had. We, we all had when we were starting the company. Um, we, we, we started trying to make really rustic, really intense, traditional-style chocolates. And we wanted to, we could only use the best quality ingredients because we were very minimally processing these. And, and, the, and basically, the chocolate tasted like what we put into it. Um, and that really early on drove us down to these cocoa farms in the Dominican Republic, Costa Rica, Mexico, eventually Haiti. Um, and we started trying to find the best quality cocoa we could. And it was really hard. I mean, we were going down to these farms with literally cash in our sock. <laughs> um, and and, and fl- we would fly down there, and we'd meet with these different producers, and then we'd buy the cocoa, and then we'd get into their their pickup truck and drive to the airport and put it on a JetBlue flight and fly it to ourselves. Uh, so it was it was quite an adventure when we started the company. Now we're of course quite a bit bigger. We we import cocoa using shipping containers, uh, but we're still a totally bean to bar chocolate making operation. You can come take a chocolate factory tour of everything that we do to make all of our chocolate products right in Somerville, and you can book it online at tazachocolate.com. You know, Kathleen. Before we get, I want to get back to the original story, and I also want to know how big you are. I don't need a dollar figure, but when you just mentioned these ship, whatever the hell those things are on shipping ships, containers. I mean, I, it's, I just finished watching. The Wire, and one of the seasons is about the docks, and the for the I mean, it's huge. Before we do this, though, you know that great line it was a Woody Allen. We don't quote Woody Allen anymore. The two kinds of people in the world: those who love Neil Diamond and those who hate him. There are two kinds of chocolate lovers in the world, right? Some who like this gritty kind of taste, which I totally love and never had before. You guys. And some who just don't, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we started Taza in 2005. So now has really been a time of reflection. 15 years later, um, we've gone from being in our 20s to our 40s. Um, and now we have three kids. So a lot of change. And over that time, we have we went from making you know really gritty chocolate to you know also adding a medium grit chocolate. And now we actually make smooth chocolate because really people love variety. Um, so kind of like a smooth peanut butter is to a chunky peanut butter. Um, we kind of make it all now. So how big are you guys? I mean, again, I'm not talking bottom line, but when we met you, this was sort of a sort of post fledgling operation in Somerville. This is you're huge now. No, well, no, <laughs> no. we're not. Yes, huge. you are. We're we're, uh, we're big around here, maybe, but we're, you know, we're a we're a uh, for craft bean to bar chocolate maker. We are fairly large, but we're still very small compared to the big companies. We produce last year. We produced. 
about 625,000 pounds of finished goods. Um, so we buy a lot of cocoa beans, a lot of shipping containers of cocoa beans are coming into the country. And we work, we, we're able to have a pretty significant impact with the farmer groups that we do work with in the Dominican Republic, Haiti, and now with an organic cooperative in Ghana. You know, I want to get back to the initial, but the reason, I don't want to gloss over this thing. The reason why your relationship with the growers is so important is for those who read anything about the chocolate industry around the world, Slave labor, child slave labor is, I mean, is pretty predominant, pretty dominant, is it not? Except with people like you who not only do the right thing, but have independent certification that you're doing the right thing. Yes? Am I right about that? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So so the, the, we were the first company to have our whole supply chain be made completely transparent and then third-party audited for our specific trade practices and the prices that we pay. We also m- ensure that all the cocoa producers we're working with, uh, we have we make them sign agreements, we visit them at least once a year, uh, and ensure that they're not uh, utilizing any kind of child or slave labor in their business practice. What is What does bean to bar mean? So it's a great be- question. Bean to bar <laughs> means that we actually source the whole ingredients, including cocoa beans, and we manufacture them. We use stone mills into a finished product. So it's almost like farm to shelf, um, bean to bar. So we, in, unlike a lot of other chocolate companies, we actually make the chocolate. So there's a lot of remelters who buy finished bulk chocolate, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just different than what we do, or we really control the process from beginning to end starting with sourcing super high-quality premium ingredients and then using a minimally processing, um, a technique that's minimally processes the ingredients into a finished product. Yeah, most people don't realize it, that, that you know, chocolate comes from a tree, literally. It's a plant-based food. You know, It comes from a tree, unless it's milk chocolate, of course, which has dairy in it, which we do not make, by the way. But, but chocolate comes from a tree, and that's something that almost no one knows. You don't even think about it, especially around Valentine's Day when you see all these heart-shaped boxes everywhere. Yeah, well, you know, I thought it, I don't know where I thought it came from, but I don't think it came from a tree either. I think people think it comes from fairies, Matt. <laughs> you know? And what about the grittiness? How's that? Is that just the minimal processing, or is there something different going on with that. Yeah, so that's yep. our traditional stone ground process. We use that for some of our we use that for all of our products, but we we also make some of our products smooth. Uh, just last month we launched our first uh, a, a really unique item, first to the market with this kind of an item. It's a it's a milk style chocolate with no milk in it. We use almond like an almond milk style. Where is it? Uh, to manufacture Hand products right, right here. There. We got it right here. Thank you, and man. if you guys want to try this or listening out uh, uh, listening to the show, yeah. um, you can actually visit our website and we've created a unique uh, discount code for WGBH listeners oh, to go onto our yes. website. It's uh, at tazachocolate.com. Uh, you can use code WGBH. WGBH, and you get 20% off anything you want to purchase through the end of the month. So if you have something you want to buy for Valentine's Day, whatever, just go to tazachocolate.com and you can use that code. What do you, Kathleen, what do you smell like at the end of the day? I, don't, I, I know it comes out the wrong <laughs> way, but yeah, what do you two smell like? So. I smell like a very clean human being. What does he smell like? And Alex spends more time in the factory. And I literally he, have chocolate on my and sleeves. So you do, it gets, actually. It's a good you point, do. Jim, actually, because a lot of people also don't realize that cocoa is fermented. So it has a really strong, pungent flavor, just like cheese is a fermented product. And wine, all the delicious, yummy things we love to eat Bread. Um, involve a, a, a really... Um, 
you know, specific fermentation process. And when Alex spends a full day in the factory or in our R&D lab, um, he comes home smelling kind of like a really powerful, pungent brownie. Um, and the clothes have to go right into the washer. So um, our, our production staff, they, they like to get clean right away. You know, I just say, uh, I, I can't stand quinoa, and this is fabulous. This is almond milk, organic chocolate bar, quinoa crunch. And it's great. I don't know why I, I like it in light of the fact that I don't like quinoa. Can we go back? I know you're sick of this. Every time you're here, Alex, we ask you to tell the same story because it's unbelievable. You go to some place in Mexico at the beginning of this whole thing. You apprentice to learn how to hand carve granite millstones. Is that is that, is that apocryphal or is that tr- is that true? It's totally true. It's actually true. So what, I can verify. So, so what did you do? What 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 did you do? What was the exercise like? Well, uh, you know, learning how to operate some of the mills and some of the equipment in, in the chocolate making process is really not easy. And uh, and beyond that, it's really secretive. Like no one wants to share how they make their specific products. So what did you do? You had cash so, in your shoes? Is that what you did? And- I, I, well, that, <laughs> that was in the very very beginning when we were, we were I was trying to figure out the kind of chocolate we wanted to make here. And that's really where the inspiration came from. They have this amazing food tradition in uh, Mexico of mill foods. So they mill everything from chilies to make mole. They mill their tomatoes to make sauces. They just uh, they mill corn to make masa and tortillas. They just mill a lot of things. And chocolate is one of those things that they mill. And when I first saw that for the first time, I saw cocoa, roasted cocoa beans being pushed through these very rustic, rudimentary rotary stone mills. I was totally blown away. And that's what I, I, I saw that. That was the aha moment. I got to make that. Does that contribute to the texture? Is that what makes the texture the texture? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's very simply processed. Yeah, but about, it also contributes about... to the flavor. Sorry, Mark. Okay. So it, it, it retains the natural flavor in the beans and the really high-quality beans that we source, whether the chocolate is really gritty or smooth. Um, so it's a way to really retain the inherent bold flavor of our beans. That's the voice of Kathleen Fulton. Alex Whitmore is the other person, and they're the couple who are behind Taza Chocolate. So let's talk about Valentine's Day. Is yes. this like a through-the-roof? I mean, your deluge, are people still... Is chocolate still a big Valentine's Day? People still love chocolate for Valentine's Day, and why not? Chocolate's delicious. It's a great Valentine's Day gift. Um, And, yeah, it's it's a It's an aphrodisiac. Big holiday for us. (laughs) Do we think it is an aphrodisiac? Um, Sure. Why not? Why not? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's delicious. It's comforting. It is comforting. It's uh, heartwarming. It's it's indulgent. It melts at your body temperature. There's something about that that's very enjoyable. It also gives you energy. You know, it also gives you tremendous energy. And and it also, I remember, um, I know some pregnant women that did this when they were like worried about, you know, toward the end of pregnancy, they hadn't felt the baby move very much. They'd have a little bite of chocolate and they'd get a little bang in their belly right away. Is that really true? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a neurotic thing to do. But if you're worried about, you know, the, the baby gets a sugar high and kicks. Yeah, well, I would say our chocolate gives you more energy than a lot of other chocolates because our ingredients are really high quality. We use a lot of cocoa. Um, we use whole ingredients, whole nuts. Um, and there's no milk because of the vegan thing or because environmental concerns. Why is there no milk chocolate? Well, we made a decision a long time ago not to introduce dairy into our facility because it really complicates production. Um it means you have to, have, you know, 
take care of a different allergen in your factory yeah. space. So and our consumers didn't it. want our yeah. customers didn't want it anyway. They wanted we, the the real dark, the real stuff. You know, we like to keep it simple, which is better. Dark chocolate it, people still think is much better for it than milk chocolate, right? Yeah, and it, I mean the 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 more cocoa content they say, the better the better it is. And I, I agree with that. You know, it definitely gives me energy. I eat dark chocolate every day as part of my job, but also because I love it. Also, There's most caffeine, milk chocolates have right? a lot of sugar. Just a very small amount of caffeine. It has mostly theobromine, which is really another type of uh, stimulant that uh, is just very similar to caffeine. Can we talk, last 10 seconds, let me talk about me for a second. Not only do I not like quinoa, I don't like almond milk, and I still love this thing. This oh, is, you got it. You got to try these other flavors we got. This is really, really. Tell us what the website is. I didn't even know you had that, but what's the website deal it's, for yeah. GBH listeners? TazaChocolate.com. You can book a tour online, come over and visit us, and you can get 20% off with the code WGBH. Love that. You can remember. It's great to see you two yeah. again. Thank you. Happy Valentine's Day to really both happy of you. For you. Alex Whitmore is the founder great. and CEO of Taza Chocolate. Kathleen Fulton is Taza's chief design officer, and she designs. All the packaging, the website. Which is a huge part of the deal. I know you know that, but that is so clearly a part. It is. I mean, it's a huge thing. It's Taza, T-A-Z-A, TazaChocolate.com. Well, I'm just reminding people. Thank you for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. Tomorrow, Governor Charlie Baker will be with us taking our questions and your calls. I want to thank our crew, Chelsea Murs, Arjun Singh, Zoe Matthews, Hannah Hubley, Anna Conley, uh, Aiden Conley, excuse me. And our engineer is John LaCroix Parker. What's on TV, Jim Brady. Well, we're obviously going to do politics. We're going to talk about the Roger Stone debacle. Now, speaking of debacles, we're going to talk about the status of the Harvey Weinstein prosecution and some incredible comments made by his lawyer. And I am going to talk about a huge action by the New York State Legislature to outlaw broker's fees, which would be a huge thing to make uh, rental housing more affordable in Boston. Let's hope they do it here. But that's it. I'm Jim Browdy. I am Marjorie Egan. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please tune in again tomorrow. It's not Valentine's yet, but it's Valentine's on Friday. Friday, yeah, so it is. Prepare ahead for your sweetheart. Thanks for listening. Please tune in again tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. <laughs>